yeah, I just really like him as a producer. I think he's a very good producer. And when you work with people who are very good like that, it makes it very much easier for yourself, you know. So um, after Living Let Die, we didn't do anything for a while, and I continued uh, working with Wings and stuff. And on this one, I just really thought, well, you know, it'd be really nice to have a change. I'll give George a ring, see if he fancies working with me, because, you know, I suppose there's the off chance that he'd say, oh, no, you know, maybe, maybe we better leave it. But he was interested in the idea. So we just got together and said, okay, come on, let's make an album. As simple as that. One of the things when George and I got together after all that time was we obviously sat down and said, well, what are we going to do here? You know, just a sort of another album, what do we want? Just a bunch of songs. Or are we going to try and do something a little bit different uh, and do something, stretch ourselves, the kind of words George and I were using originally. And uh, the nice thing about it is if you think that before an album, you you may not end up doing exactly what you wanted to do, but at least the, the, the effort to stretch yourself changes things slightly and certain things that... It's like an abstract painting, you know, someone will see something else in it. Someone will say, oh, you can't see the big bus at the back there or the nude lady? Somebody says, no, it looks more like a Dalmatian to me, you know. But I love that, the, the way that people can just put their own interpretations on it. A lot of things to say about the album, which really and truly it's, it's down to hearing in the end because everyone's going to hear it their own way everyone's going to hear it differently that's really right yeah because you know we listen to it from our point of view george and i um that's the kind of professional product sort of job you know we, we're obviously on that side of it uh, i'll play it to one of my kids you know on a track that, that uh, didn't seem to jump out to us will jump out to them you know they'll hear something in it um it's crazy i love it actually i love that fact of life in fact, now, the craziest thing, out of all the hooks on this whole record, I've got my, my four-year-old boy sings, somebody now, I don't know why that's the hook for him of the whole album. He's not, it's a tug of war, or take it away, or here today, it's nothing. Just, he's a baby, he knows those words. It's yes. one relevant fact, he knows somebody cares. And so therefore, that's the one he goes around humming, you know, and it's, it's fabulous to, to... You know, I just, I've mentioned to people on and off, that I quite fancy working with him. Actually, my ambition always, one of the, one of the things we didn't do a lot of with the Beatles, was working with black musicians. Uh, we admired them very much, we always admired them, loved all the Motown stacks and went crazy for all that stuff. But we never, outside of Billy Preston, who, who played on uh, Get Back and was in the Let It Be film, uh, we never really worked much with uh, black artists, you know. And it'd been one of my unfulfilled ambitions, really. You know, people in interviews had said, what's your ambition? I could never think of it. But then I'd be driving home and I'd think, oh, that's one of them, you know, is to, is to play with some of these, you know, um, really hot black musicians. And uh, how Stevie's thing finally came about was that I'd written a song a couple of years ago called Ebony and Ivory. And that was about racial harmony. And I'd... Uh, I thought, well, you know, ideally what I'd like to do is I'll sing it with a black guy and we can sort of show physically uh, that there's, there ought to be some harmony, you know, by the two of us singing it kind of thing. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. 
hi, 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 the night is young, and we have another absolutely jam-packed podcast for you lovely folks here today. Here today. Yes, that is the first time that that reference has ever actually been appropriate on this show. And on that very disrespectful note, welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and we are finally about to make our very first steps into the period of time often referred to as McCartney's Lost Decade, a period of an apparent dearth of decent tunes and albums, so they say. Well, here on Paul or Nothing, we are gladly going to put that to the test and see what the results are. Yes, this is one of our official run of episodes. Yes, we are back to doing an official Paul or Nothing episode, not one of those 50 bonus episode sideshows that have kept me from doing my homework like I was supposed to have been doing. Here today, we're going to go through the life of McCartney and the recording of the album Tug of War. Yes, just as McCartney said, it's a tug of war. Oh, I'm very sorry. And rather appropriately for such a a massive album, both in terms of the scope of all the songs on it and in terms of its importance in McCartney's discography, but rather unusually for a singular album review, we are going to be covering an extraordinary breadth of time in the sense that we are going to be going from kind of like the uh, end of 1979 right the way up to 1981 and a lot happened in that long period of time so sit back and relax this is going to be a big one we're going to be going back to some of our classic long form content i can feel the excitement in the room and then once i've covered from everything including the history of the album the artwork all of the session musicians all of the guest musicians the reception and all of that i will then do a second part you'll you'll be able to download part two where i will be going through all of the songs on the album and reviewing them one by one that will be out shortly following this one so yeah like i say all of this historical context and the song reviews on our part two are all going to be in service of paul mccartney's titanic 1980 release tug of war yes i know we are indeed actually going to be talking about the music once again on this show fuck me it has been a while and all i know i've admittedly spent far too much time on the extraneous elements of the podcast in general you know like the bonus episodes and not the actual album reviews and obviously i don't want to get too rusty or anything like that and for those of you who have been listening to the show from the start you will know that this show was originally entirely all about dem album reviews And it's only in the kind of recent year or so that these bonus episodes have crept into the scheduling in the way that they have. Though, to be honest, I think that after McCartney 2 and after such a certain massive earth-shattering band breakup, I was a little burnt out from reviewing silly love songs and you name it. If it wasn't about an album, I have rambled on about it. And I've actually unearthed quite a few other ones that were in the pipeline as well that I will be able to add to the future scheduling soon. More about them later. But yeah, I've heard you please, I know your pain, and now it is no more. Though I must say, I really am in this recharge state, gagging now to tuck into Pipes of Peace and blow that trumpet. And even though the lion's share of my attention and my hard work has been going into Tug of War these past couple of weeks, I'm still quite hard-pressed to say whether or not it truly is better than Pipes of Peace. Because, wow, Pipes of Peace has really taken me by surprise. Tug of War still has the time it takes me to do this recording, so we'll see what happens. 
though in saying that I know I'm going to be annoying someone because I don't want to come across as someone who doesn't respect tug of war no I know how important this episode is today tug of war is a cornerstone album for many people out there and I constantly see it in people's top fives and top threes it really is going to be a big one like I've probably said 18 times before This is also going to be a fun episode for me purely just because Tug of War is such a dense album and has such a a vivid and tangible story around it, making it easily one of the most fun Paul McCartney albums to discuss and review and critique and make podcasts about. Well, it better be anyway, because I know that I've been a little worrisome about, about Tug of War throughout almost the entire run of this podcast. I think we all knew that eventually with the sheer amount of time, though, that it would actually take to get to this episode that I should be able to quote-unquote, get it, a little more. And whilst that may be somewhat true, hashtag spoiler alert, I'm going to say right from the outset that my cautious nature was not totally unwarranted, especially coming in so hot after McCartney 2. And I remember back when I was originally looking at Tug of War, doing these original notes, and the same feeling I had towards McCartney 2 then, in that whenever I'm listening to Tug of War, it's very present in the back of my mind. I know that McCartney's never a guy to do two of the same album, but with McCartney 2, it's an album that by many people's accounts is bloody awful and is filled with some real stinkers, but for me, it's one of his very best in his entire oeuvre, and it's got some of my, my very favourite weird and wonderful and unusual Macca tracks. It's, it's just so different, it's just so experimental. And for me, you know, looking at McCartney being a man who's really bored with wings and he's bored with being in a rock and roll band and making these rock ballady type piano albums, I saw this as this really interesting and possibly very fruitful direction that he could have gone into with the 80s in the way that he was kind of predicting so much of what the 80s was about to give us with sync and techno and dance music. We know that McCartney was going to do things like that later on in like the 90s and the 2000s what with twin freaks and the firemen and stuff like that but whenever i listen to tug of war i can't help but think ah some of this is really good and some of this is really classic but gosh wouldn't i have just loved more of mccartney too people always like to bandy around the word genius with paul mccartney but with mccartney too he really was ahead of the curve so when he gives us an album like mccartney too that features so much potential it just makes me slightly irksome and awkward and irritable that his follow-up tug of war is such a commercially viable generic pop rock album none of those classic curveballs he really hasn't pulled the rug out from under our feet this time this is something that we would expect him to do and i know that for a lot of people this is the quote-unquote return to form something we're going to be talking about a lot throughout these episodes but i've never liked it when paul has played it safe I know this is some of his best material, but there's a little part of me that thinks that it probably could have been a bit better. And I know I'm not the only one. Right, before we get the ball rolling too fast, let me just preface that. A lot of the topics and segments in this episode, you know, the episode where we're going to be doing most of the context and the prehistory of Tug of War, it's going to get a little bit fuzzy, a little bit back and forth and a little bit all over the place. And not just because it's poorly researched or anything, cough, cough, it's really not. But because the story all kind of takes place at once. You know, whilst all the wing stuff is happening, there's all the tug of war shenanigans taking place. Then there's all the John Lennon shit going down as well. And all the Denny Lane stuff. And Paul's family is having issues during this time as well. And it's all concurrently going back and forth and taking place at at the exact same time in little bits and crossing over and bleeding in and out of each other. So it makes it harder to do it in a single linear format. 
Please forgive me if I hop back and forth from time to time, from time to time. So we've been talking about this band Wings for well over a year now. We've seen their rise, their fall, their rise again, and then their fall. Or rise, depending on which way you look at it. But yeah, this is the end of Paul's second long and winding road. And here we are on the other end of it. Just in the same way as he left the Beatles 10 years ago, staring down the 70s, now Paul, again a single entity, was now staring down both barrels of the 1980s. There's literally an endless number of directions that he can go, and what can be more exciting than that? Even if he isn't as surprised the last time he left a band. So we'll see. Though, despite the fact that this is a Macca-centric podcast and not a Wings one, I really am going to be reluctant to see them go. I'm going to be sad that this particular band dynamic and songwriting group is both over, you know, as a fan of the music and as a podcast for making content. I like Wings. Love Paul, but I really do like Wings with all of their warts and naffness and inconsistencies. They're a very enjoyable band in that way. And I'm going to take every opportunity to revel in the fact that this episode in our main run of episodes, might possibly be the very last time that I ever officially get to talk about Wings in an official capacity. Okay, I'm ready. Let's get this over with. Let's kill Wings. I just I just hope Paul doesn't do something stupid like drag it out needlessly long or something like that. <coughs> cough, cough. But before we do all of that, I have to cock-block all of this tug-of-war talk one last time, and instead, you'll have to be content, before the content, with blue balls and a peck on the cheek, as I run through our housekeeping. Yes, this is the part of the show where we do the flogging, we do the plugging, and do the chugging. Oh god, that word still sends shivers down my spine. Little word of advice for you young'uns out there. Be careful not to sign up to -to door-to-door charity fundraising companies. Unless you have nerves of steel and balls of brass. Because I just didn't. Okay, flashback time over. I need to talk to you about the blog. Yes, check out our oddly successful blog that seems to have more hits on Google than this podcast does. Which you can find at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. That's paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. The blog is basically the site B of this podcast. The sister site where the ideas that aren't quite yet episodes or can't be episodes or are just better presented in the written form are released into the walls without fences, without boundaries, and can live on their own without interference. If you want some extra content from this show, if you can't get enough of Paul, or want to see some stuff in advance, then check it out at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Then, of course, if you haven't already, please follow us on the Twitter, and you can find us at McCartneyPod. It's the central hub for the show where I get to fuck with any Paul McCartney fans and any Paul McCartney thoughts that come to my mind and see how you, the community, react to it. We do pictures, polls, irritating gifts, occasional clickbait promo for the show, attempts at credible retweets. Basically, anything macker that catches my eye, it goes there. Making it the best way for instant access to me and the show. That handle again is at McCartneyPod. For a more personal and intimate style of contact, then you can, of course, contact me aka the show, aka not actually Paul fucking McCartney for fuck's sake, at 
paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. That's paulmccartneypod at gmail.com, where you can inform me about anything and everything Macca, any gigs you've been to, how you got into the man and the music himself. Maybe you play his music. Maybe you've even exchanged a few words with him. Maybe you've even seen him live. What is your McCartney story? I love reading out your emails on the show. I read out a fantastic email from Dylan Seavey in or Sevy on the last episode. That was very fun, and I can't wait to read out some more. So yeah, please pander to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube simply by typing in Paul McCartney Pod or Paul or Nothing. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Like I've been saying recently, I've actually seen a few of these. I've seen a few of the reviews. They've mostly been extremely positive. Some of you out there have written some very kind things indeed. All of it goes towards helping promote the show and it just gets more eyes on the show, more ears listening. It grows the community. And that can only help. So yeah, if you've got five minutes, if you can go onto iTunes or on whatever podcast app you're using, please give the show, if you like it, a five-star review. And last but certainly not least, you can check out our Patreon. Yes, the Patreon. Even though I'm sure most of you know what it is by now, but for those of you who don't, Patreon is a platform whereby you guys out there are given the chance to help support independent content creators such as me financially. You know, people always say, oh, I'd buy you a coffee or I'd buy you a drink. Well, this is the next best thing and it is something that helps the show directly. If you like the show, if you like what I've been doing and you think it might be worth something, then you can help support the show, help keep the lights running and help keep the show ad-free forever. You could find all of that and gain early access to episodes and all of that malarkey by clicking on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash McCartneyPod. That's patreon.com slash McCartneyPod. Anything you can give is another step towards me being able to, to spend more and more time on this podcast. And as you all know, I need all the time and help I can get. There are a couple of you out there who are already helping support the show. You are the lifeblood. Thank you all so, so much. Thank you all for your constant support. But yeah, we're done. Housekeeping over. And after all of that build-up, I think it's time for a proper episode of Paul or Nothing Again. Don't you? This evening, John Lennon arrived at the emergency room at the Roosevelt uh, Hospital. He was dead on, at the time of his arrival. Numerous resuscitative efforts were made after his arrival in the hospital, including transfusions, surgical procedures, other procedures, but in spite of the effort of many physicians and after many procedures, we were unable to restore the life of Mr. Lennon. Good morning, everyone. I'm Tom Brokaw. This is today, December 9th. I'm here with Jane Pauley, and this entire half hour will be devoted to the murder of John Lennon, ex-Beatle, one of the best-known musicians and most influential people of his time. As you heard Dr. Stephen Lynn at Roosevelt Hospital in New York City say, Lennon was shot and killed. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to strawberry field. Nothing is real, and nothing to get hung about. Strawberry fields forever. Now, on an all episode of this show, the disbanding of wings and the Denny Lane fracas would be more than enough to comfortably fill out the context segment of this episode. 
before we would eventually move on to the reception and the album artwork and stuff like that. But no, instead, as the title of this segment strongly hints at, history, as it is wont to do, decided to twist itself into the massive elephant in the room that we have to deal with here today, folks. And that is, of course, the death of John Lennon. Yes, we are starting the tug-of-war episode with possibly one of the worst parts of the entire Beatles story ever, ever, ever. You know, emotions are running high with and around this topic still to this day. And you really can't approach it with anything other than the greatest of reverence, which is going to be quite hard for a guy like me. Yeah, not exactly the peppy, poppy beginning that I could have gone for, but in all fairness, I love Paul. This is a Paul McCartney podcast. The death, the murder, the assassination of John Lennon is easily one of the most grossly fascinating and necessary backstory topics that we will have to cover. And for those of you not in the know, this John Lennon guy, he was a pretty big deal, both to music in general and to Paul. So, before I throw myself over the brink of no return on this monster of a topic, a topic which, in all fairness, probably could receive its own episode, I must admit that I was a little bit daunted, you know, after having come off three very long extensive episodes on the Paul is Dead conspiracy, to be moving on to another equally gigantic Beatles-based conspiracy, Beatles-based kind of rabbit hole, but... I did find some solace in the fact that at least this one was actually true. Mark David Chapman really did shoot John Lennon, and John Lennon really did die. He died horribly, in fact. So horribly that the world over really still hasn't quite gone over it. To the extent whereby Chapman himself may never receive parole from prison for his own personal safety. That's how fucking big of a deal this is. It's nearly been 40 years since Lennon took six rounds of hot lead on the streets of New York and still... Still, people hate Mark David Chapman with an unseen vigour for what he did to music. And I would not be surprised at all if there wasn't a long list of certain individuals out there who would not love to be the guy who killed the guy who shot John Lennon. But you never know. Maybe that person who is waiting to finally give Mark David Chapman what's coming to him is out there listening to this podcast just waiting for a trigger word to awaken them from their MK Ultra mind control Manchurian candidate sleeper agent slumber and spring them into action you know possibly words like Argentina Finch Cube 3 Clock Quark activate now agent 37 you will recognize your handler when you see them good luck and godspeed So yeah, moving on, that will probably be the only attempt at a smattering of humour at the start of this story because from here on out, folks, like I say, it is going to be pretty grim. And it's going to be pretty grim very quickly. This is the death of a beetle here. The first death of a beetle, no less. This is like the end of an epoch. This is a status quo shift in music like no other. Yeah, we had the day the music died. There was Jack Kennedy's shady as fuck assassination. And we had... The day Elvis was found on a toilet after his turds had hardened from barbiturates. But the death of a beetle was particularly profound and powerful because outside of the actual human tragedy of it all, it meant one thing for certain. There would be no reunion of the Beatles. The Beatles story was, in effect, truly over. The death of John Lennon was the death of the Beatles. And I think that shock, that loss, is what hit the world all the harder and it hit everyone rather instantly 
Now, I've asked various adults and quote-unquote older folk what it was like on the day that they found out John Lennon had died. And my dad, who was in the US at the time, tells me of how white-faced and pale so many of the people were, like they'd lost some sort of family member or something. It's understandable. Many of these people would have been t between 12 and 20 when the Beatles first hit the scene, been following them ever since, been growing up with them, experiencing life with them. They were the soundtrack to their lives. And now that perfect quartet had been violently trimmed down to a solemn trio. That meant the dream, the ultimate Beatles dream, was never going to be fulfilled. There was never going to be a reunion, another album, another song. No, Free as a Bird doesn't count to ever come from the Beatles again. The story had now ended, and like any tale with such a dramatically tragic twist, it has been since immortalised in both history and pop culture. We'll see it time and time again, you know. Elvis, Cobain, Winehouse, Morrison, Biggie, Tupac. All of these people were also essentially made into saints of Western music through their own martyrdoms. They too, like Lennon, will be forever young, forever deified, and the pain will probably be for, for as long-lasting as pop culture itself lasts. Now, whilst Lennon may not be a part of the official 27 Club, his death may also have been a little more impactful to society, purely just for the fact that it really did signify that the 60s and 70s, that kind of optimism, that peace and love era, that carefree, drug-taking, hippie kind of lifestyle was over. It was the 80s now, whether you like it or not. In doing the research for this particular episode, I actually came across one of the figures that I'm going to be discussing quite extensively in part two. That is the indomitably cool Stevie Wonder. And like I say, in doing the research for this show, I actually stumbled across some pretty phenomenal audio of Stevie finding out rather live about the death of Lennon and announcing it to his audience at his show at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, California. It doesn't really add anything in particular to this show, but I thought it was important to play it just, just to give some context, just, just to see how people really were reacting at the time. Okay, let's hear the clip. I would like to say something. I'd like your attention, please. This is very important, and I want you all to understand that I am not a person who likes to be the of any bad news, but I think that I would like to, for those of you that don't know this, because I couldn't, it's been, it's been really hard for me to do this show tonight, but I did it in memory of People like this man, like Dr. Mondo the King, and like someone that recently was shot. He was shot tonight three times. And I will tell you who, and I know that maybe you won't be able to sing this song with me, but the song is about people like him that have lived and died with a principle of unity for all people. I'm talking about Mr. John Lennon. So I'm very sorry to have to tell you that. But when I found it out, it's still very hard for me to do this show, even now. But I know that 
you would want me to continue to express those same feelings as he has in his life. And you can quite clearly hear that some of the people in the audience are reacting quite violently to the news. It's also clear that many people thought it had been some sort of mistake or joke. There's clapping, there's some laughter. But then, as they see that Stevie's deadly serious and holding back tears of his own, it, it just goes silent. Subsequently, all over New York, people found out in the next couple of hours, and then hundreds, if not thousands, of people eventually swarmed all across the Dakota Hotel where John had been shot and where Yoko still was, and flooded Central Park with peaceful demonstrations, guitar circles and hand-holding candles, all of that. A lot of this was done as an open sign of respect for John. Some folk were there in open mourning, and many were there in solidarity with Yoko and the rest of John's family. Now, I know all of you want me to dive into the nitty-gritty and the bloody mess that was that day, but you all have to be reminded, I suppose, that this is a Paul McCartney podcast first, and that the exploration of this event, its impact on Paul, and, and truly trying to see it through his own perspective throughout all of this is going to be our main focus. Maka has sometimes been known for his lack of connection with the public, but you can see how this particular part of the story, conceivably, does go some way in humanising Mr. McCartney. It makes him a little more relatable, a little more vulnerable, maybe. I mean, could you imagine it? Losing your best friend in this way? Paul had already lost his mother and father by now, but with the loss of John, he had already outlasted all of the major figures in his life. Yeah, you know, I know about Starkey and Harrison, but neither of them had the perceived nor the real relationship of the McCartney-Lennon duo. It was something very rare, very special, and now completely irreplaceable. Paul would not be where he was had he not met John Lennon, and now at the tender age of 40, Paul was truly a self-reliant man. He had no rocks to cling onto. He was a rock now. He was an I, I land. He has a wife and kids, a business and an empire, but no John. Whilst initially the shock and sadness for Paul must have been unbearable, the death of Lennon could have been seen as a possible period of growth, self-reflection and maturation for McCartney. Now he was, for all intents and purposes, his own man and free to act how he pleases. Ugh, and that is my best attempt at trying to find some sort of positive out of this story. There, I did it, okay. Pressing on. On Monday, the 8th of December, 1980, Mark David Chapman woke up and somehow knew that today was the day. He got up, got dressed, and had something for breakfast. Leaving his room at the Sheraton Hotel, he made his way with purpose to a local bookstore down the road where he bought a copy of J.D. Salinger's A Catcher in the Rye. And then, without hesitation, seemingly as if this was the plan all along, he begins to scribble a note inside of the book. The note that he penned reads, This is my statement, signed Holden Caulfield. The this is heavily underlined as well. Holden Caulfield being the misanthropic teenage outcast protagonist of said 1951 novel. And I actually remember reading said novel myself a few years ago. I think every Beatle fan at some point in their life attempts to read the sacred or maybe damned tome that is A Catcher in the Rye, and I remember enjoying the text quite some bit. 
It was a day just like any other amongst the hustle and bustle of the Big Apple. Chapman then made his way to the target area, and when he arrived, he waited. Just standing around, milling about outside Lennon's residence at the Dakota Hotel. A few of the die-hard Beatle fans that were still there in 1980 were already hanging about outside the building with him, as they always were, perhaps legitimising his presence somewhat. A man stood outside waiting for a Beatle in New York? Nothing strange about that. Around 5pm, and after a few hours of patiently stalking out his position, he then saw his quarry and swiftly approached him with something in hand. This time, however, was the first of two times he would meet the former Beatle that day, and it was on this occasion that he was actually brandishing an album in his hands. It was a copy of Double Fantasy, the album that Lennon had just recently put out, and was his first full studio release for five years whilst he was quote-unquote off being a dad. Our life together is so precious Together we have grown We have grown Although our love is still special Let's take a chance and fly away Somewhere alone. It's been too long since we took the time. No one's to blame. My no time flies so quickly. As Chapman accosted the plastic Ono man, he was very quiet, almost silent by all accounts, with Lennon left almost puzzled as he quizzically asked, Is that all you want? Chapman nodded and left with his prize in hand. Though it is odd to think that Chapman would never actually go on to listen to that copy of Double Fantasy, for he'd probably never be in the position to ever own a vinyl record player again. Though there is definitely some sort of perverted collector masturbating on that copy as we speak. But I digress. Lennon left swiftly and busied himself for the rest of the day, which was a proper Beatle day looking at his late evening recording schedule, and he carried on working on some recordings with Yoko, as well as taking part in the now iconic January 1981 Rolling Stone cover. You know, the one where he and Yoko are in the naked embrace. You definitely know it. I wonder if Lennon felt funny at all during his activities that day. If anything in his body told him not to come home. Or that something was just not right. If uh, instinct was kicking in. Could he have known that he'd just met his killer? Mark David Chapman continued to wait until 10.50pm when he finally saw John's limousine coming up the street. John, ever the impatient man, always preferred to get out on street level and take the stairs to reception as it was much quicker than the admittedly safer underground car park entrance. The ever-present Beatle fans knew he would be there, and so did Chapman. John got out, as he had done hundreds of times before, and he made it about halfway to the door before he heard something. 
armed with a Charter Arms 38 Special Revolver, Mark David Chapman emerged from his hiding spot, and after taking what was described as a military firing stance, he shouted, Mr. Lennon! John turned, and maybe he recognised him. Did he see it was the weirdo from before, or did he just see the gun? Either way, Chapman was pointing a pistol at him now, and John, like any animal with a desire for life, with something to live for, he began to run. Five sharp cracks reverberated out through the streets of New York, and he was struck four times. Each wound is said to have been enough to be fatal, and the doctors who worked tirelessly to save him described his wounds as being so severe that even if he was shot on the operating table with all of the equipment ready to go, they still would not have been able to save him. Dr. Stephen Lynn, head of the emergency department at Roosevelt Hospital, pronounced John Lennon dead on arrival at 11.15pm. This is the point in the story that everyone likes to point out, that as Lennon was pronounced dead in the hospital, the Beatles song All My Loving actually started playing over the hospital tannoy radio. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Tomorrow I'll miss you Remember I'll always be true And then while I'm away I'll write home every day And I'll send all my loving to you I'll pretend that I'm kissing the lips I and hope that my dreams will come true And then while I'm away I'll ride home every day And I'll send all my loving to you Lennon was fucked right from the get-go. Imagine... Okay, maybe not imagine, that's a very poor choice of words. But picture four pieces of hot metal coursing through your body at over 1,500 miles per hour. And then not only that, each one of those hot pieces of metal is fashioned in such a way that they burst and explode inside your body, tearing further holes all the way through you. You are bleeding out, you hit the floor... And then you're thinking about your wife, your sons, your friends, the things you never did, the songs you never recorded. And then it's black. It's all over. No do-overs. No second go at it. Done. The man is gone. He's dead. And all we have is the music, the memories, and the blood-stained spherical glasses that Yoko would, in poor taste, use on her album cover for... Season of Glass. Chapman was found at the scene of the crime, reading his copy of Catcher in the Rye, and was then promptly arrested, peacefully and without incident. Hardly the behaviour of a typical gun-wielding lunatic, but Chapman and his motivations were anything but typical. Very much in the vein of modern thrillers and action films, maybe he wanted to be caught. He was then charged with murder in the second degree, and after six defence psychologists declared him insane, five of which specified schizophrenia, Chapman, all of a sudden, just before the biggest trial of the century, decided to plead guilty. This came as quite the shock to many, as normally at this point people would expect the defendant to try and get away with it. But no, not Chapman. The guilty plea essentially meant that there would be no trial, 
and thus very little access to the evidence of the case. He was sentenced to 20 years to life, and thanks to the acts of one Mrs. Ono Lennon, has ensured that as of 2018, he will never, ever, ever make parole. I mean, regardless of the safety to all of us, it is unlikely that Chapman will ever be released, like I say, just because of the sheer amount of people who would try and subsequently kill him. It would just happen. It's, it, it's maths, isn't it? Perhaps Chapman pleaded guilty just on the sheer chance that if he actually fought the case, he might end up actually accidentally winning the damn thing and end up being legally not the guy who killed John Lennon, which would go against the entire point of the operation. For how can you be known as the man who killed John Lennon if you don't plead guilty? It does make sense in Chapman's own twisted logic. Now, speaking of twisted logic, this is the part where we, the public, the people who weren't involved, try and ascribe reasoning and logic to Chapman's actions, but doing so is a lot more difficult than you might think. Now, the main reason that people put behind Chapman's actions is that Chapman was seeking some sort of instant guaranteed infamy and notoriety that would subsequently come from slaying a beetle. This does make a lot of sense. If you are a nobody, what better way to, at least in a kind of perverted by proxy way, become a somebody than by killing someone who does have fame and notoriety. You will be forever part of their story. Mark David Chapman, for his actions, is now a part of the Beatle narrative, a part of the Beatle history forever. He did it. I'm talking about him now, you're listening to it now, he succeeded. It's kind of fucked up really, isn't it? The more insidiously interesting reasoning uh, behind the murder is that, and this is one that he initially himself put forth, is that he was inspired, in one way or another, from reading Catcher in the Rye itself, and that caused him to kill Lennon. This is a pretty crazy leap, like I've heard a lot of violent movies and violent video games causing people to supposedly kill, but books that focus on the melancholic malaise of growing up in 1950s New York causing people to kill? Now I've heard everything. The inner English literature critic inside all of us will, of course, try to ascribe many different interpretations as to what elements of the books may have quote-unquote triggered him. Was Lennon one of Holden Caulfield's famous quote-unquote phonies? You know, that little trivia nugget that, that so many people make a business of pointing out? Was it the themes of childhood innocent lost, growing up, depression, or ego-driven self-destruction that were just too much for Chapman's fractured mind to digest and interpret properly? Maybe... After all of this, Chapman just saw some hidden meaning within the book that only he could see due to his own unique madness. Who knows, he probably just could be a kooky bastard and just said something randomly in an, an interview. Rather like Holden Caulfield, Chapman is ever the unreliable narrator. He's also cited religious reasons for the killings, possibly spurred on by John's own bigger-than-Jesus comment, and he's even hinted in a kind of son of Sam way as to possible demonic forces within his own body urging him to kill Lennon, which is pretty par for the course, really. He has since disavowed such comments and has fallen back on the Holden Caulfield phony stuff. James Paul McCartney found out about the slaying of John Lennon from a phone call in the middle of the night. 
First reports hit England by about 4am and the first news bulletin started reporting it by 5am sharp. Now, Paul hasn't elaborated, but it could very well have been someone from the States giving him the head up just before the media found out. But as he details here, I'm not sure if his brain was capable of processing much information in the wake of such terrible news. Let's hear the clip. Just that month, when John was murdered, when did you hear it? Who, t who told you? When did you hear that had happened? Uh, I was at home and um, I got a phone call. It was early in the morning, I was in the country, uh, and um, I just got a phone call. And it was like, I think it was like that for everyone. It was just so horrific. Uh, you couldn't take it in, and I couldn't take it in. And uh, I just, you know, just for days, you just, you just couldn't think that he was gone, you know. Um, so yeah, I, it was just a huge shock, and then I had to tell Linda and kids, and you know, you, you know, and um, yeah, it was very difficult. Yeah. I mean, it was very difficult for any, everyone. That was like a, a really big shock, in, I think, in most people's lives. It's a bit like Kennedy. Yeah. There, there were certain moments like that. The thing was, because it was a shock for us, but we didn't know it. Yeah, no, for me, it was just so sad. Um, that, you know, we, I wasn't going to see him again and we weren't going to hang up. And, you know, for me, the, the biggest thing was that the guy who took his life, the phrase kept coming in my head, jerk of all jerks. It was just like, this is just a jerk. This is not even a guy politically motivated. It's just some total random thing. I go, hey, pop. Just a damaged, a broken like, person. You know, yeah. So, um, yeah. Just as a quick aside... In Jeffrey Giuliano's controversial book, Blackbird, on the very first page, it asserts that Yoko is the one that rang Paul to give him the news. Just thought it would be strange if Paul were to somehow omit this particular piece of info, especially since in Tom Doyle's book, Man on the Run, he states that Paul rang a crying Yoko later that afternoon instead. Oh, this Beatle history stuff, folks, it, it's just so he said, she said. And the interpretation of certain events just becomes borderline impossible. But, as you just heard from Paul himself, he did just make a very good point. Yes, one of the worst parts about all of this story is that, despite John's own amazing lore, his rich, detailed tapestry of a background, everything that he was going to do, everything that he had done, all of his friends, all of his enemies, and it was just some guy, a wacko, a nut job, completely random, something terrifyingly unpredictable that could happen to anyone at any time, any place. Yay! No, but I do think that the shocking randomness of the violence that was on display here led to most of the Chapman conspiracy narratives that we all know and love so well. The death of John Lennon, like some sort of Lovecraftian horror, is a concept that might almost be too much for us to process and digest and face head-on at all as mere mortals. You know, the very idea that any of our gods can be taken away from us for any reason at all is an unprecedented spiritual and metaphysical catastrophe. Grand people deserve grand narratives with appropriately grand finales, surely, don't they? Well, this is where the need comes from. 
you know, again, sitting once again in my armchair doing a amateur psychological analysis. My interpretation is that people's admiration and love for Lennon meant that any reason other than some sort of grand overarching conspiratorial narrative theory would fall short of being suitable for the man who wrote Imagine and Hey Bulldog and In My Life. You know, it couldn't just be that John was knocked off by some loony bin, right? It has to be that it was some government spy that had Capture in the Rye as some sort of MK Ultra Trigger text. You know, duh, it had to be that. Rather ironically, it seems that a Beatles' death can never truly live up to their life. Though, when compared to that whole Paul is dead bollocks that, that we did a few months ago, this conspiracy certainly has a lot more legs to stand on, as the shadiness of the government agencies surrounding this seemingly know no bounds, as does Chapman's own weirdness, and to this day, it continually makes reasonable people think, hmm, there's some sketchy shit going on there. Jumping back into the narrative, Paul has received this phone call, possibly from Yoko, and Linda comes home from whatever she was doing, comes up the drive only to see a distraught Paul weeping and sobbing uncontrollably, and he's just broken all over. I mean, who can blame him? For this episode, and for, and to some extent for the next one, I did try to genuinely picture what it would be like if I lost one of my close friends like that in that way. And as someone who has only really lost older family members, I can only fathom a portion of what it would be like to experience such a deep loss. Obviously, this is going to be the episode where we're also going to be doing the dirty on the behind-the-scenes shite that led to the downfall of Wings. And whilst I'm going to be going into typical Paul or nothing details as to the various reasons why things went the way they did and, you know, what feelings were felt, though I still think it's possible to make the case that the straw that broke the camel's back, the thing that finally made Paul realise that he couldn't be bothered to do this wings thing anymore, was in fact the death of John. I don't think that's hyperbole or anything. Yes, Wings were already going down the slippery slope with little chance of turning back, but the murder of his once best friend and writing partner undoubtedly added fuel to the Wings' funeral pyre. I mean, if you really want to get deep with things, you might argue that Wings was, for all intents and purposes, a declaration from Paul that he didn't need the Beatles, especially pointed towards John. And now that John was no longer around, he would no longer need this fake rock band for him to strut and parade in front of John for his approval. Call that cynical theory, but hey, I certainly think there is an element of that in there somewhere. And if that's too much for you, then you could just see it as John's death made Paul want to simply start afresh in all aspects of his life. A proper clean slate and perhaps suddenly being in a band with all of that responsibility and, and having to look after other people in a time of extreme vulnerability for himself just felt especially wrong for him at that time. Now, cast your minds back to when Paul lost his father. What did he do? Did he say, drop whatever he was doing and go to the funeral? No, of course not. What he did was go on a world-conquering tour that would come to define his return to rock godhood. So, Paul being the man that he is, aka a man that has, or at least had, certain issues with confronting the harshness of life, did exactly what anyone with any sense about Paul McCartney guessed he would do. 
On the 9th of December 1980, not two hours since he had heard the news of John Lennon's death, he dusted himself off, pulled himself together, had a cup of tea, threw on his brave face and buried himself in his work at George Martin's Air Studios. This, however, is not as odd as it sounds, as George Harrison would do the exact same thing that day. Ringo was busy flying out to see Yoko and check on her and, and the kids because Ringo's a fucking boss, but I'm not sure if Paul would actually physically be able to see Yoko and the kids that day. And whilst the fruits of his efforts on that particular day probably don't actually appear on the final album of Tug of War, it was probably for the best that he kept to himself during these first few hours after the tragedy. When Paul arrived at air that day, they mostly spent time working on the aptly titled Rain Clouds in an environment that session musician Paddy Mahoney described as having an unspoken sadness about them. Denny Lane was there also. He remembers that day as thus. I remember the first thing he said to me was, I just don't know what to think. He was obviously physically shaken, and even at the best of times wasn't really too articulate when it came to expressing how he felt about things. After one of the takes, Paul and I were just hanging out, leaning up against Air's huge floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking Oxford Circus, when I happened to notice this dark green truck going by that said, Linen Furnishings, or something like that. Oh God, look at that, I said. He just sort of broke down, you know. I'll tell you one thing, man, he said. I'll never fall out again with anyone in my life for that amount of time and face the possibility of them dying before I get a chance to square it with them. It's ironic that Paul would actually say these words to Denny Lane, the man for who, as far as the public generally are still aware, is the bloke for whom he has still an unresolved beef and gravy with. You'd like to think that maybe the tragic loss of John Lennon might have brought Paul and Denny closer together and that they would have now been able to see past such petty squabbles. But in my own cynical, jaded Debbie Downer sort of way, I cannot help but feel that John's death, if anything, probably made Paul see Denny in more of a you-never-were-and-never-will-be-anything-close-to-John sort of way. More than ever before. And that Paul's patience for Denny from that point on would forever be much more shorter. That being said, Denny is still alive, so Paul may still be able to patch things up, for our sakes at least. Paul has been known to be a man who drowns his sorrows from time to time, and he and producer George Martin, who was presumably also very affected by the loss of John, cracked open a bottle of whiskey and basically mourned Lennon's death for a couple of hours, and they both described it as a very comforting experience. Okay, folks, as a guy who's trying to occasionally produce entertaining podcast content, I'm sorry about all of this. I mean, I don't think anyone from Charlie Chaplin, Charlie Day or Charlie Brooker could put an uplifting or positive spin on all of this. There is no rosy glow at the end for Spielberg to milk and turn into a saccharine positive. You might call it a drag. Well, no. Oh, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Surely that's far too an understated and disrespectful and irreverent term to describe such a tragic loss of life. Surely no one, when questioned on the news of John Lennon's death, would make such an obvious faux pas comment. Well, obviously if I'm doing this sort of cheesy build-up, then that is exactly what Paul fucking said. After Paul had finished his recordings at Air Studios and doing a little bit of drinking with George Martin, he opened the door to the front entrance and stepped outside where the ever-hungry press were waiting for him outside just as Chapman had waited for Lennon, ready to get the scoop on McCartney's reaction. 
And boy oh boy, did they ever get their soundbite to repeat over and over again. Regrettably, let's hear the clip please. So, John Lennon was shot and killed last night in front of his home in New York City, an event that has left many people stunned and saddened. Uh, I'm very shocked, you know. It's terrible news. What were you recording today? Um, I was just listening to some stuff, you know, I just didn't want to sit at home. Why? Well, I didn't feel like it. What time did you hear the news? This morning sometime. Very early? Yeah. Don't know, yeah? Drag, isn't it? Okay, cheers. In Paul's defence, I mean, it was a drag, but to describe such an event in such a way feels like a misplaced Norm Macdonald joke or something. And suitably enough, the media and public did not take kindly to McCartney's comments at all in the wake of what was one of the biggest shocks in modern musical history. A drag. A drag. What was Paul thinking when he said this? A drag? Well, I think we need to... Occam's razor this motherfucker here and go with the very real possibility that Paul wasn't thinking when he replied to that reporter. And I mean, even Denny Lane made the astute point that it does seem to be a particularly odd case because the whole situation was correctly put. It was a drag, but there seems to be something whereby it's only socially acceptable if a tragedy is ever described in the most absolutely solemn and erudite way. And that's not what happened with Paul. What happened was Paul's media hat head, for a brief crucial moment, had slipped off of his head. And he was seemingly, for the first time probably ever in media history, was caught off guard. Caught off guard, Sam? I hear you quizzically question. Well, yeah, his best mate had just died, hadn't he? He'd had a few drinks, maybe a joint or two with Denny. Back when two joints wouldn't totally obliterate you. And he just stumbled out into a media circus, all the bright lights flashing, all of those Hollywood tropes. He's probably being bombarded with all sorts of questions whilst all sorts of thoughts are buzzing around in his own head and all of that's mixing together and swirling around him. It's probably a very totally alien moment for Paul to be so on the back foot. The only thing that Macca's mind could bring itself to say in that situation was... Yeah, it's a drag, you know? So, you know, it was... Obviously, I was like probably more shattered than most people when John died. Um, and I had plenty of sort of um, personal grief. But I'm, I'm not very good at kind of public grief. So someone thrust a microphone into my uh, face on, on the, the day it happened and said, what do you, what's your comment? Now all the other pundits came out with great comments. Well, John will be sorely missed and he sounds, and they, they summed it up. All I could muster was like, it's a drag. And it was like, I couldn't say anything else but that. I, I just couldn't, nor could George, nor could Ringo. Nobody came out with any big comments because he was too dear to us. You know, it, was, it was just too much of a shock. Yeah. But of course, then that got reprinted. McCartney, when asked what he thought of Lennon's death, said, it's a drag. And it comes out like that, you know, and so you've just got to be so careful about all that stuff. As I've mentioned, no prizes here for guessing how the public and media reacted to this comment, with the majority of people jumping to the conclusion that Macca, after years of rivalry and separation from Lennon, made what could only be described as an uncaring, unfeeling, callous comment. Clearly, word of this gaffe got back to the McCartney camp quite quickly, and so a quick statement was drafted up by Paul for the press, and it read, I've hidden myself in my work today, but it keeps flushing into my mind. I feel shattered, angry, and very sad.
There was no question that we weren't friends. I really loved the guy. And what did Paul think about his choice of words? Because he didn't specifically address it in that press statement there. And it took a little while. But fortunately for us, Paul did decide to set the record straight, clear the air, slash quell the still smouldering fires in an interview that he did with the NME in 1982. He said, I was talking to Yoko about this. I'd had a few conversations with her quite recently, and she told me people don't like me because of certain things I've said. For instance, when John was killed, and I was asked for a quote, I said, It's a drag. To me, looking back on it, I was just stunned. I couldn't possibly think of anything else to say. I could have tried for a sentence and put it all into words, but I couldn't. It was like, blob, blob, blob. All I said was, ah, it's a drag. That, to put in cold print, sounds terrible, you know? Paul's reaction today was, it's a drag, thank you very much. And then he got in his car and zoomed off. That's the terrible thing about all the stuff. That's the PR thing again. I hate all of that because I don't ever mean it. I had the way how it comes out in print. Let me ask you what everyone wants to know. How did you feel when you heard the news about John Lennon's murder? And then it's at this precise moment that the interviewer's cassette auto-tape actually stops. And Paul wittily quips. You see, your cassette doesn't even like the question. <laughs> Listen, John will be the first guy to laugh about that. How did I feel? I can't remember. I can't express it, you know. I can't believe it. It was crazy. It was anger. It was fear. It was madness. It was the world coming to an end. And it was, what will happen to me next? I just felt everything. I still can't put it into words. Shocking. And I ended up saying, it's a drag. And that really doesn't sum it up. Were you actually still close with him? Yes, yes. I suppose the story was that we were pretty close in the beginning when we were writing stuff together. We felt a lot of sympathy for each other. Although, on a personal level, based on a lot of stuff that went down later, I obviously wasn't that close to him. To me, he was a fella, and you don't get that close to fellas. I felt very close to him, but from a lot of what he said later, obviously, I was missing the picture. But anyway, I felt I got very close to him then, and when the Beatles started to feel the strain in the last couple of years, the relationship was getting to a, a bit of a strain because we were drifting more apart. I think we were kind of an anchor that held us together while we were still there. I think we all, in a way, started getting very angry with each other, annoyed and frustrated because we were still very keen on each other, loved each other I suppose, because we'd been mates together for so long. Like Ringo says, we were as three brothers, it's that kind of feeling, I mean, I didn't realise that, but Ringo would tell me later, you were like my brothers you lot, you know, we all knew that there was some kind of deep regard for each other. So there we are folks, one of the largest chapters in Paul's life has suddenly come to a dramatic close. Both crippled and freed at the same time, what new horizons would now come into view for the new McCartney? Though, an even better question might be, how does Paul McCartney even operate in a world without his alter ego, brother from another mother, spurring him on in the back of his mind? I guess we'll have to find out now, eh? John Winston Lennon, 9th of October 1940, till the 8th of December 1980.
commitment issues. When describing why Paul McCartney broke up Wings, it is easy to sound very apologetic, as Paul is the main character of our story, of course. But whilst researching the reasons for the band coming to an end, it was hard for me to do anything other than create a list of reasons that Paul came up with inside of his own head as to justify breaking up the band. Come on, we knew that outside of the Paul and Linda or Plinda partnership, that none of the actual band wanted to break up. Yeah, they knew that maybe they were not as hot as they used to be and that they could use a tune-up and a bit more practice, but it was a great gig for every other party other than Paul and Linda, so being the resoundly nice guy that I surely know that Paul is, he would have had to have come up with some sort of reasoning to rationalise such a drastic and harsh business move. This is it, people. The coup d'etat. The death blow. The mercy strike when Paul would absolutely actually bring Wings to an end. The primary and most widely publicised reasoning for Wings coming to an end is that McCartney was just bored out of his fucking skull and wanted a change. Paul is this ever-shifting, ever-progressing individual who struggles to remain tied to a project if there is no one else there on his level or has a personal attachment to, to tie him down to terra firma. We all know by now that Maka has to grow, has to do new things, and if he doesn't, he stagnates like still water. Things were not helped by the fact that the type of music he made with Wings and the constrictions therein just weren't doing it for him anymore. And I think most people could tell, especially when you see how much exuberance and experimentation is on McCartney 2 and Tug of War. You just knew that they were scratching an itch that Wings just never could. Wings never really settled on a particular genre during their tenure, they were built on a foundation of moderate rock and roll sensibilities with a desire to fill stadiums. And somehow, in spite of the fact that Paul was in charge, Wings were just not as musically experimental or diverse as the Beatles or even his solo work. And every release by the band, bar band on the run, is plagued in one way or another by the preconception that Wings were or had to be this kind of big rock and roll band which they kind of were supposed to be in their manifesto, and yet never were. It was Paul's own fault, really. Initially, Wings were meant to be that massive rock and roll slash blues band that Denny always wanted, and clearly that was just not panning out, and Paul probably realised that he was just chasing the dragon of what perceived to be a, a cool musical genre, rather than just writing for himself, which is what we all know that he really should have been doing the entire times with Wings. And it's not like the quality of the music was making up for this lack of creativity either. I don't think we, we really need to go into how Wings are and were kind of a joke and a musical punchline in some circles. But the sad truth is, and, that is something, and, and this is something that I, as a Wings fan, have had to come to terms with in my own way. Wings was not only not as good as the Beatles, but for the most part, Wings were never really better than solo Paul McCartney on his own. With hindsight being the 2020 medium that it is, we do know with historical clarity that Macca's straight-up solo projects, aka Ram, McCartney 2, Tug of War, Pipes of Peace, Flaming Pie, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard, and most recently Egypt Station, are generally better, more cohesive, more personal, and generally likeable than the majority of the Wings studio output. Now... Whilst the similarities between McCartney and Lennon during the breakup of the Beatles are surprisingly common in this narrative, the main difference is that 
when it comes down to it, Paul was never in a band with people that he could truly call his peers. Lennon didn't need that. He was fine. He, he sought that solitude. But McCartney was built on a rock that looked an awful lot like John Lennon. Denny Lane was the closest thing to a partner and appeared that he had in the band. But as George Martin put it, Denny was no John Lennon, just the same as Yoko Ono was never a Paul McCartney. And for Paul to take that step down after the Beatles for, for so long was never going to work. Ever. Paul is a guy who has come from such a competitive background and for him to shift gears into another environment where he doesn't have that same pressure and desire to push the boundaries to impress and cajole would inevitably come out in his music, wouldn't it? The most notable examples of this would be Red Rose Speedway and Wings at the Speed of Sound where there is just this myriad of confusion and lack of direction and lack of core sound that is so damning to the Wings legacy. When it comes to Wings, folks, stay away from speed. Of course there is Good Night Tonight and Beware My Love, but the overall consistency of Wings and their oeuvre is just not up to scratch a lot of the time, and it was certainly not up to Paul's personal standards. There's a lot of filler, a lot of misfires, and a lot of directions that were quickly abandoned. Paul clearly wanted something that he had a little more control over, something that he could work on with a little more time and a little more thought and not have the pressures of that band. Unlike Lennon, whose departure from the band, which was much more of a freedom-based decision to leave a group of equals based on his motives, McCartney leaving the Beatles certainly had much more to prove, as it were. He was definitely trying to show that he was a big boy and he could do this on his own and that he didn't need anyone, which is surprising that he would actually start a band. He had recently just had quite a bit of success with McCartney 2 and Wonderful Christmas Time and eight years on from the Titanic Ram, he still unquestionably proved that he could do all of this shenanigans indeed on his own. Though, I do love Wings, you know I love Wings. But I'm coming to a point in this show where, again, this is another thing I have to come to terms with, that this isn't even just the issue of Paul in 1979 no longer needed wings. I'm at a point where I'm straight up, Paul McCartney never needed fucking wings in the first place. And this is coming from a guy who loves the band. Perhaps the constant pressure and once released, you know, to change wings to Paul McCartney and wings was also evidence that Paul knew what's what and no matter how humble he was trying to be with the whole oh you know i'm just the bassist you know that whole shtick was pointless paul we love you we'll follow you band or no band and besides paul has tasted creative freedom again with mccartney 2 coming of course i'd love to see what the back to the egg crew would do with their next album had mccartney not decided to cancel wings at this point but paul we love you, we'll follow you, band or no band, and I think he knows that. Besides, I think even the fact that Paul took on the project that was McCartney 2 really was, uh, you know, tolling the bell that was Wings. The fact that he even took on a solo project without disbanding the band must have been, surely must be some sort of signal that, you know, he'd had a, a, a little bump of creative freedom in the nightclub bathroom, and as, as, we, and as we all know, it's awfully hard to put down after that. Now, whilst I'm sure that other members of Wings would object to this point, but the important thing to remember is that from Paul's perspective, he was doing all the heavy lifting in terms of new ideas, writing songs, and generally quote-unquote getting shit done. And on top of that, Paul 
After almost 10 years of wingsification and pushing the band and trying to get the band in the spotlight, it was still, for all intents and purposes, for all legal applications, all still himself. Paul was still the main primary draw for all wing shows, their materials and their subsidiaries. In essence, our Paul really was dragging this band kicking and screaming through their wobbly discography. And except in rare cases, the rule of thumb, even after 10 years, is that all the best wing songs are poor ones and that the worst album was the album with the most band collaboration. Let the maths speak for itself. So, if Paul is really coming up with all the ideas anyway, if Paul is writing all the songs, and if people are only really coming to the gigs to see Paul anyway, then it's easy to see why he might consider just cutting out the middleman and just going solo. And... Of course, I have to bring up the monetary benefits of going solo, especially for those of you who have watched the recent film Bohemian Rhapsody. And whilst Paul's already being accused of screwing bandmates out of money, at least if he was a solo act with a paid touring band and studio musicians, then at least he wouldn't have to deal with any bitching. As a solo act, everyone knows, and more importantly, there is no pretense that anyone other than Paul is in charge. Just the way Paul, I assume, likes it, and what also I assume is the most effective way for him to flourish creatively. A large chunk of the initial formation of Wings was firstly based on the fact that Paul wanted to be in a band comprised of people who, in stark contrast to the generalised conception of a supergroup, would be chosen more on whether they were fun to hang out with rather than purely for their musical chops. Paul was certainly fond of the original Wings lineup, but it is the Wings Over America gang that were the bunch of people that Paul was truly happy to exist with. And then suddenly, after all of that success, they were gone. And then we have this new lineup. Drummer Steve Holly and guitarist Lawrence Juba, who we actually had on the show a while back, go and check out that episode. Both of them had proven themselves as extremely proficient musicians on the Back to the Egg album. They were bringing a new, youthful edge to the band, and they were set to make their second official appearances as official members of Wings, as well as the band's first foray into the 80s, whatever that would have sounded like. But... As we all know, it was all for naught. Paul was at a point in his life where he probably just didn't want to have to attempt to make any more of these close-knit band-type relationships. Obviously, this this isn't true because, obviously, we, we know he's very close with his touring band now, but they are his touring band. They are his band. So maybe the relationship is slightly different there. And also, not that I ever think that Paul was ever that close with any of the members of Wings anyway, but just the whole rigmarole of meeting the new members, getting to know them, jamming with them, learning their sound, experimenting, making an album, collaborating all together, listening to other people, was just all too much work at this point in his life. You can tell that he feels, like Danny Glover in Lethal Weapon, that he's getting just too damn old for this shit. And... This extract from his 1982 interview with the NME highlights that feeling. I did it with the Beatles, but for this lot, I don't think he was even bothered to take a risk that they might even be good. I think he just wanted out. Now, whilst I may paint the picture of Back to the Egg as being an album that is a true underrated classic, Paul, the man pulling all the strings here, was decidedly disappointed with the last tour in comparison to Wings Over America, as well as the reception and sales themselves for Back to the Egg. Wings' last album was a major disappointment for the studio, especially for the amount of time and money that they spent recording it and all of the music videos for the, for, the, for the TV special. More on that on a future videography episode. Keep your eyes peeled for that one. Since it was such a big, since it was such a big push to change up the band's image and sound, all of that extra effort 
just seemed like extra waste. Unfortunately, as Paul pointed out, he was entering his 40s, and the idea of starting, regardless of whether Paul was getting a, a bit too old, or whether the, the band members were getting a bit too young, or maybe he just didn't like these two guys that Daddy Lane had randomly hired to fill in this needless gap to, to, to keep this charade of a band going. Either way, the idea of Wings being a bunch of dudes to chill out with was clearly not being met, and in the wake of McCartney 2, the whole thing just felt much more like work. In addition to all of this, during the periods where it was the Wings core trio, you could argue that it's basically a borderline solo McCartney experience already, so the transition to a solo McCartney work may have been smoother than Paul had initially suspected. When speaking several years about the state of the latter Wings era and its collapse, Linda said the following, I think Paul was very frustrated. He wanted to work with Wings, but he just picked the wrong people. He needed the best people to work with, but he had to carry all of the weight. Not only did Paul not want to work with the same ever-changing subprime Wings lineups, but he was actually secretly slash not so secretly itching and harbouring a specific desire to work with a wide variety of other artists. Artists. Even at his uncoolest, Paul has some considerable clout in the musical world, and with Wings, he really wasn't fulfilling his potential, whilst he was stuck quote-unquote collaborating with these same four people. Paul was clearly bursting at the seams with ideas, and had, he had all these avenues that he could possibly go down, but that then grow exponentially when we introduce other artists into the mix. And I think he, even he knew by this point that Wings were definitely holding him back creatively. First and foremost, the, first and foremost, the most important person that Paul wanted to collaborate with was a person from his past, the Obi-Wan to his Luke, if you will. We've heard his name a few times this episode already. He is, of course, the mighty George Martin. Paul had not worked with his longtime Beatle producer since Wings wrote Live and Let Die, aka one of the best songs Wings ever did, because George Martin was on it. And whilst going solo would be a brave and vulnerable move for Paul, he knew that he could rely on a certain degree of security with the wise old sage that was George Martin hanging around. When speaking of Martin, Paul said, I wanted to work with George Martin again. I called him up on the phone, asking him if he was interested. He accepted, and we decided to make a, a professional album. It was the first time that George Martin produced me since Live and Let Die. I really like him as a producer, and when you work with people who are really good like that, it makes it easy for yourself. So after Live and Let Die, I didn't do anything with George for a while. I continued working with Wings and stuff, and on Tug of War, I just thought it would be nice to have a change. He was interested in working with me again, and we got together and made the album. It was simple as that. The thing I find most interesting about McCartney's decision to work with Martin again is that it's basically the exact same behaviour that we have seen from Paul before, in the sense that he is always perhaps subconsciously trying to find a peer, aka a person who can tell him no. You know, first he had John, this indomitable, hard-to-please writing partner. Then when that ended, he sought the same in Denny Lane, which didn't exactly work out. But now he really can't have that same relationship now that he's going full solo, so he'll instead make sure that he has someone he still respects where it truly counts, the production. Whilst Martin is a, uh, indeed a predictably safe choice for Paul, he's certainly more obviously suited for Macca's sound and sensibilities than any of the, the other Beatles were anyway, and his ability to elevate those big, bold, brash British soundscapes is pretty much unparalleled in this period, and it's perfect Macca. 
Martin himself brings a certain amount of clout of his own. And of course, obviously there are stories of Paul being this malevolent dictator of wings and that his overindulgence was getting out of control by this point in the story. And a lot of that was down to a lack of grounding from a former proper peer. But now he has that. Paul actually talks about one such incident. It's only it's like a, a minor thing, but it does demonstrate the point of what Martin brings to the table and how he can motivate McCartney differently than other people. I don't want to take away from Wings, but it's true. There's been a feeling that there's been something missing, you know. And in making this album, I found out what it was. When George and I were working on the orchestral arrangement for the song Tug of War, for example, we recorded the orchestra and it sounded pretty good. But we had some bass parts we hadn't recorded quite right. And George said, look, this is my reputation and yours going right on the line here. Would you mind if we brought the orchestra back and recorded it all again? So we did, and at a huge cost to somebody, probably us in the end, but it was worth it. Now, George bandmate Slayer Martin was clearly not going to be the only big name that would be gracing the grooves of this album, and we're going to be going into them in more detail when we start talking about the recording of the album, but just judging by the stellar lineup that ultimately graced the album, Paul was both itching to work with anyone as long as it wasn't within the context of Wings, as well as clearly feeling that this band were now holding him back. With said knowledge and everything he was feeling at this point and everything that had happened to him, it was probably clear at this point that he knew he was going to have to do something once and for all. Folding Wings The year is 1980. Wings are at a crossroads. Paul has only just escaped the clutches of the Japanese authorities after attempting to smuggle weed into the land of the rising sun. The band lost a prolific set of tour dates across the country and have been put on standby ever since. This is coming off the release of a less than mediocre album and less than mediocre UK tour that both failed to connect with anyone at the time at least. Paul has since released his solo album McCartney 2 and single Wonderful Christmas Time both to reasonable success. You can feel the sweat rolling down the necks of Steve Holly and Lawrence Juber at this point. The big smoking gun in the room when discussing Tug of War at all is the fact that Wings, the pop and roll band that Paul had been working with, touring with and living with in various incarnations over the year, was still technically on paper and legally still a band at the start of the recording sessions for this album. Yes, in another world. In another world. In another world, Tug of War is actually another Wings album. Hard to imagine, I know. Well, I say it was the recording sessions for Tug of War. It was the recording sessions for a next album, a rather amorphous, uh, unknown next album, whatever that album was or may be. We don't know how far in advance Paul knew he was going to make his move when he did, and it would be wrong to say that Tug of War was never going to be a Wings album, so I won't. Shocking as it may seem, but Tug of War was actually originally partially somewhat kind of conceived to be a Wings album. To be precise, a lucrative, possibly tour-laden, royalty-receiving follow-up for the post-cock-up back to the Egg Gang. It certainly is one of the more interesting what-if questions of this period, because the idea of Wings approaching the material that would eventually go on to appear on both Tug of War and Pipes of Peace is just such a surreal idea, and the music featured on both of those releases is just so undeniably McCartney on every conceivable level that you wonder whether McCartney would even have brought half of those songs to, to the recording sessions at all. Like, could you imagine if there existed a Wings version of Through Our Love or Sweetest Little Show or The Pound Is Sinking? You know, it just it just boggles the mind. 
As you've probably guessed, Tug of War had a bit of a rocky start, and it is clear that McCartney was struggling to play with the other children once he had reconnected with his roots and learned to play with himself, as it were. You can imagine Paul doing his hair in the morning and complaining to Linda that he really didn't want to do all of this, and she's conflicted about whether she should just suggest to him that he call it quits, and, you know, there's so much inner head drama that's probably going on with McCartney at this time. But he at least sucked in his gut one last time, and Wings reconvened in July 1980 for a series of largely unproductive rehearsals. They took place at Finchton Manor, in Tenterden, Kent, and the purpose was, you know, for this unspecified future project. Songs that were worked on during this particular period were Ballroom Dancing, which would, of course, end up on the final album of Tug of War, though the version that, that we hear on the various bootlegs is much more of a bog-standard band rock and roll affair, and the lack of overtly indulgent Macca dancehall flares means the track just kind of slogs through as another Wings rocker, you know, it's... It, well, I used to smile when I was a pup Wailing down and out in a china cup With a recipe for a lovely day Sticking out of my back pocket But it wasn't always such a pretty sight Cause we used to fight like cats and dogs And we made it up in a ballroom Ballroom dancing Made a man of me One, two, three, four I just played a yo-yo Ballroom dancing I seen it on TV where I got what I got Ballroom dancing Where well, I used to fly When I was a kid It didn't grind if it hurt a bit On a far land To a far land the most known diseases But it wasn't always such a pretty sight We used to fight like cats and dogs We made it up in a ballroom A ballroom dancing Made a man of me One, two, three, four It is just a shame to see the obvious difference at how much passion Paul puts into this song when he's got wings in the room and when he's on his own with George Martin. There was Old Man Lovin', a kind of on the way slash Blackpool, twango type of song. Could have been pretty fun as like a B-side to a single or something. There was Ranachan Rock, which is an instrumental song that was eventually bootlegged on the Last Flight uh, Ultimate Archive collection. Cracking Up, a Bo Diddley and Rolling Stones classic that Paul would go on to feature on his album of US rock staples, Back in the USSR, or the Russian album, as well as his live album, Tripping the Live Fantastic. 
There was, there was also a really interesting rendition of George Gershwin's uh, 1933 kind of staple Tin Pan Alley tune, Summertime, which was very kind of uh, psychedelic and dirgy and very weird, and that would have been very great to see on the latest Wings album, maybe if they'd just have experimented with that sound. They did another song called Nature Is Calling Me, which is another kind of pointless McCartney original that may have just been made up on the spot. Yeah, kind of just a, a groovy little bit bop-esque jam ditty. Finally, there was another song that, that they did. It was uh, a Denny Lane song called Taking On A Woman. It was a rocker that they shopped around, but obviously it was so unsuccessful that it didn't even end up on Denny Lane's Japanese Tears album that he would release shortly after the breakup of Wings. Paul, Linda and Lance Juba then flew out to France and spent 10 days working on the songs for Ringo Starr's 8th studio album, 1981's Stop and Smell the Roses. They all recorded together at the fantastically named Super Bear Studios in the village of Bear les Alpes, where they made five songs. Four of the songs were for Starr. Two, Private Property and Attention, were brand new Macca compositions. Then they snuck in a cover version of Carl Perkins' Sure to Fall in Love with You and the studio ad-lib You Can't Fight the Lightning. McCartney also produced an early eight-minute version of Linda's love song, Love's Full Glory, which was later re-recorded and released on her Wild Prairie promosuous album. Not only was Paul basically going to leave Lawrence Juba high and dry without a buy or leave, and, you know, without a world-famous band anymore, but he also got him to promote Wonderful Christmas Time, record demo stuff for him, record stuff for Linda, and now record stuff for Ringo as well. Christ, talk about rubbing salt and lemon juice into the wound there, Paul. Later in August of that year, McCartney decided to do what he always did whenever he needed to bash out a few bangers for wings, and that was to engage in an intense writing session with supposed partner, Denny Lane, aka in the same way that they did for Band on the Run, uh, Muller Kintyre, and for a lot of the London Town sessions. This was a slightly strange move, however, as it would clearly would have made newcomer bandmates Juba and Holly feel like proper third wheels to this entire process, rather than actual bandmates working on a sound together. You know, th these were the two kids who would sit around whilst the grown-ups did the real work. But after Back to the Egg, I don't think Paul was going to take many chances. McCartney made a series of recordings with Denny at his home studio in Sussex. These were intended for an, an album to be produced by George Martin, and included the following songs. Take It Away, Keep Undercover, Average Person, Dress Me Up As A Robber, The Pound Is Sinking, and its counterpart that would be included Hear Me Lover, Sweetest Little Show, Ebony and Ivory, Wanderlust, The Unbelievable Experience, We All Stand Together, Boyle Crisis, Give Us A Chord Roy, Seems Like Old Times and Stop, and finally, You Don't Know Where She Came From. Most of those titles there, I'm sure I will be getting to in a future Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode, probably like episode 6 or 7 or something by this point. After Paul actually went and actually got something done for Wings with his actual writing partner, it was time to show the rest of the band, aka the other two guys that he's begrudgingly obliged to work with, the fruits of his labour. So, Wings undertook even more rehearsals in the October of 1980 at Parkgate Studios in Sussex, England, a recording studio which now sadly has been converted into studio apartments. Few reports exist from this session, and I imagine it is because everything went so swimmingly well that there was simply nothing of note to report. Because that's how these things tend to work. It's not like it could have been absolutely fucking atrocious or anything, and they just wiped the lot. 
Thankfully, Paul was still unperturbed, and in the same month, the gang reconvened at Puggins Hall in Tenterton, Kent, and this is really where you can see some of the material really starting to take form live on tape into what would become Tug of War proper. These Death March rehearsals took place on the 30th of October, and whilst I have a certain morbid affinity and soft spot for the recordings that came out on the other end, they can really only be described as lethargic, tense, and lacking any positive energy at all. It's all over the music, it's all throughout the performances, and it really must have been a nightmare to be there. I mean, the majority of the songs, as we're going to see here, were clearly just songs that McCartney wanted to play, and any semblance of, oh, you know, just treatment I like the bass player, that bullshit's long dead. What do we have? Well... Firstly, they would indulge Paul with two Eddie Cochran songs, 20 Flight Rock, which would actually be on the Last Wings live set list, actually, and Cut Across Shorty. They would have Sure to Fall in Love with You, a Carl Perkins standard, made famous by Elvis. Movie Mag, another Carl Perkins number, which would eventually go on to appear on Paul's Run, Devil Run. We have the Blue Moon of Kentucky, another standard. We had Old Man Lovin' again, Summertime again. We have Good Rockin' Tonight, which was a 40s blues standard. We have Shake, Rattle and Roll, because why not? Uh, Stealing, which was an American 20s folk song standard, like a really fucking obscure one. Singing the Blues, which was a Guy Mitchell number one tune from 1956. We got the Back to the Future standard, Johnny Be Good, the Chuck Berry song. We have Mama's Little Girl, which is a wing song that Paul would release as a B-side to his solo single, Put It There, many years later. I'm sure we've come across that one before. Then we have a bunch of songs that would make its way onto vinyl in one form or another. Uh, they played together Ballroom Dancing, Average Person, Keep Undercover, Ebony and Ivory, as well as its B-side Rain Clouds and Cage. <laughs> And this is a song that I'm very much looking forward to talking about on said appropriate Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode. But just as a quick run through, this rocker was the original closing track for Back to the Egg that was last minute replaced by Baby's Request. And it's cool to see that Paul was still kind of working with this song and he liked it enough maybe to have included it on, you know, what might have been Tug of War in that What If track list. Note to self. The What If Wings album, that would be a good bonus episode or blog. I'm going to write that one down. Anyway, what is interesting about all of these songs, though, that I've just listed, is that it does highlight just how blatantly Paul was trying to drive his youngling bandmates insane. You know, that kind of Kubrickian fashion whereby Paul makes them play these, uh, you know, dated old classics and the band weary and twitchy will kind of look at Paul in utter desperation and give him another look as if to, as if to say please don't make us play another song that only you and your dad will have remembered and then Paul would just 
turn to them and be like, oh, you know, just uh, one more, you know. No wonder there was a lethargy and tiredness to these proceedings and sessions. I'm falling asleep just reading about it. On top of that, I'm pretty sure I've lost a few listeners too. So how the hell is any of this supposed to stir up a supposedly flagging band? Well, it wasn't. I'm desperately suspicious that Paul was just trying to see if he could push them away through boredom and make them want to leave rather than actually having to fire them. It's more of a funeral requiem than a proper rehearsal and Paul is just playing whatever he wants to pass the time. But alas, Juber and Holly clung on, ever hopeful of a turnaround. The way in which Paul actually orchestrated his two newest bandmates into not being around anymore is an example of classic McCartney misdirection. Once again, he would be trying his hardest to manipulate the situation to the point whereby somehow he wouldn't even end up looking like the selfish arsehole that he was and the sole reason for the band breaking up, despite the fact that he was a selfish arsehole and was the sole reason for the band breaking up. The way Paul was going to get rid of these two upstarts was to come up with some sort of Reichstag fire 9-11 false flag event that would be seemingly out of his control. And the man who was going to light that fire was George Martin. You see, the iconic producer, in McCartney's eyes anyway, was always a father figure slash professional slash proper adult. And this meant that Paul could kind of defer some of the more straining responsibilities to him, like some sort of all-powerful fixer. Beatleheads out there will be more than well aware of the fact that the Beatles kind of already used George Martin as the scapegoat slash excuse for getting rid of Pete Best and hiring on Ringo Starr instead. They did this because Martin was powerful, respectable, and someone for whom they could trust. Rather crucially though, the main reason Martin can be used for such oustings is that he's simply the man in the best position for the job. Not only does he respect the music enough to jump on the no bandmate grenade in the first place, but with all of his clout, weight, and unassailably high up position within the music industry, means that he's one of the few people who actually could jump on said grenade and come out with only a few singes. Now, tell me you aren't getting similar vibes with Paul's behaviour here, as detailed from this quote from Lawrence Juber in Howard Soon's Fab and Intimate Life of Paul McCartney. Paul came one day and said, you know, George is going to do this album and he doesn't want to do it as a Wings album. So thanks, but we don't need you right now. Wow, Paul, that's some ice cold shit there. I mean, yeah, oh yes, of course, that is totally what happened. Of course, it was George Martin that made the final call that Juba and Holly should be removed from the project entirely. And there was no way that the most powerful man in rock and roll could possibly have been sidestepping the responsibility and just not owning up to his own feelings. <coughs> now, I don't think Paul was like afraid or pussyfooting in any way. Moreover, I feel that, that this is just another clear cut example of Paul putting his political hat on, making Paul McCartney great again. And yet again, another example of Paul simply not dealing with an issue head on and just putting the, the kibosh on the whole thing. That being said, I don't think that this is the move of modern Paul. It is strange that, th that this kind of like bitchy band breakup dynamic is happening to a 40 year old man. But like I say, no one's lived the life that Paul McCartney has lived by this point. He does have no barometer to measure any of this by. So anything he does do is breaking new ground in a way. And when you break new ground, well, that's the thing, it, it, it gets broken. It doesn't always end up going the way you want. And then chucking all this on top of the whole Lennon thing, it's, it's almost hard to really like 
blame Paul, and I know that I'm falling for the media, and I'm falling for the, for the spin and the shtick, and I'm also falling for the fact that this is a programme about Paul. But for me to sit here and say that I really judge him, and I'm, I'm totally against everything the way he did it, would not be true. Do I approve of the manner in which things were carried out? Not really, no. But hey, that's the story, you know? I wonder how Holly and Juba felt, though, when they found out that Denny Lane was still going to be on the album, or whatever Tug of War was going to be. Obviously, though, Denny Lane is a much older friend of Paul's, but I'm sure there must have been a moment where they looked at the MO of Tug of War, a.k.a. Paul just wants to play with the best in the business, and then they looked at Denny Lane, and maybe they, they didn't think that that quite added up. Not saying that they did, not saying that that happened. I still want Denny Lane to come on the show, but human nature is human nature, and I certainly thought of it the moment I read it. Though, Lawrence Juba did seem to be quite the lovely guy when we had him on the show. Go check that out. So, probably not. Now, before the actual album came out, but still in the post-Wings malaise, and with a somewhat understandably brief apprehension to dive into other major projects, McCartney and George Martin seemingly killed a little bit of time on the We All Stand Together project and those sessions lasted from late October till no November 1980. And those are songs and sessions that I cannot wait to talk about at some point on an upcoming Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode, or maybe its own separate little thing. And then in the following month, the band would, of course, start on Tug of War. However, there is one last thing I must talk about. Now, we've lost both Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly, and we know that Linda's not going anywhere. But... There is still one last topic that I have to tackle before we really start, you know, pulling apart the threads of Tug of War. And that is Denny Lane. The Denny Lane incident. But the last thing, and, and this is what I was saying about finding out from people on Facebook and, find, and YouTube, is that I found out that recently that I played on certain tracks on Tug of War and Pipes of Peace, which I'd completely forgotten. And also, I don't go out and buy those albums. So I don't... You know, I'm not checking on them every day to see what, what, whether I'm on them or not. It takes other people to say, well, you played on that. Oh, I see. yeah, I remember that now. Simple. And, and uh, we were at that stage in, where we were doing another album, in a sense. And basically, I left. And so it stopped being a Wings album. Or, but it, it would have been Wings plus, you know, all these other names. It was Wings branching out into another thing. But... Um, it became his album because I left and there was no wings anymore in a sense, you know. Okay, folks, let's get down to the brass tacks in terms of wings here. Aside from Paul and his natural inclination to act like Paul in the seemingly godlike way that he does, there would be no wings without the aforementioned Denny Lane. As George Martin famously said, though, he ain't no John Lennon, and I think he'd probably be the first person to say that, but he was both Paul's principal writing partner for the entire stint of the band's existence, as well as head liaison between Paul and the various other incarnations of the band. He was the loyal lieutenant in Wings, and like I say, he was there from the Alpha to the Omega for good or for bad. No Denny, no Band on the Run, no I Lie Around, no Mull of Kintyre, no London Town, no Go Now during their live shows. Denny, unlike Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly, was the only musician from the former band that was Wings to make it onto any of the Tug of War sessions and the final album. How did he make it this far though? Why didn't he get the axe? Was it because Paul felt guilty about 
axing the rest of the band and felt like he had a debt to Denny, perhaps. If you know the rest of the story, then maybe not. Maybe it was symptomatic of Paul's own stubborn nature and that keeping Denny Lane on board was a way of proving that the Wings project wasn't a complete failure. Was it because Denny refused to go? Did Denny have a contract that he had to fulfill maybe you know Paul was like ah we owe Denny one album so we could definitely make him just the guitarist on this one well whilst there is no go-to answer the one that is more than likely true and is actually oddly enough the most positive one and the one that I'm more inclined to go with is simply that Paul genuinely wanted Denny Lane and the guitarist that is Denny Lane on this all-star Paul McCartney album Like I said before, Denny was Paul's principal writing partner for a period of time akin to that of John Lennon. And lots of the songs, the the main chunk core of the songs for Paul's next two albums were shopped around and kind of workshopped a little with Denny Lane. They were written with him. So a lot of this material is still kind of his in a way, at least at this point in the story. Also, whilst George Martin would be the primary father figure for this album... Denny would be another steady, reliable hand to help him craft this album in the way that he knows that he wants to craft it. Perhaps Denny for this project would have to take a step back for more of a do-as-you're-told type role, but at least he would be there on the album. Though that is the thing to some degree, this was going to be an album, and that's it. Whether it was going to be a Wings album with just the core trio again, or a full Lawrence Duber, Steve Holly bonanza, or just a solo McCartney album, Either way, it was going to be just an album. And whilst the prospect of just a Paul McCartney album being a small thing may baffle you, it's clear why Denny would not be such a fan of this prospect. No tour, no gigs, no live performances, no band, no nothing. This was going to be a bog-standard studio recording affair, which, while fruitful to the songwriter, multi-instrumentalist composer Paul McCartney... It would do little to help sate the financial woes of one Mr. Denny Lane. As a guitarist, featured artist, collaborative artist, slash perhaps writer, he wasn't nearly going to get as much financial security as a date of tours over a period of months and weeks would. Regular money by this point is not a consideration on Macca's mind, but for Denny, a man for whom I'm sure by this point felt like he'd earned his Roman citizenship as it were, a greater share of the spoils of the work and with just being a featured guitarist he's not going to have that itch scratched whatsoever. Of course this would only go to serve to rub salt in the already sore and festering wound as Denny was still upset over Macca's possibly self-induced marijuana-based fracas in Japan just prior that culminated in the cancellation of the entire Japanese tour. As I detailed on part one of our McCartney 2 episode, this tour was supposed to be Denny Lane's final score that would have set him up with a pretty penny for both present and future financial quarterly reports. Not only that, but if you remember, that Japanese tour was also solely created for the express purpose of getting a bit of cash flowing and building a long-lasting, ever-lucrative buying fanbase in Japan that would have offset the fact that Paul had, up until this point, been quite stingy with the dough with fellow bandmates. So everything's just been snatched away, just out of reach. When speaking of the Japanese incident... Lane was clearly finding it hard to move on in the seemingly carefree way that Macca was leaving the band. It was very hard for me to forgive him after that. 
I realise now that it was definitely the beginning of the end. So, the arrangement may not exactly be what Danny Lane was looking for, but hey, if Wings is coming to a close, and he's got a solo album coming out, uh, then hey, a job's a job. He survived the Night of the Long Knives, so, you know, perhaps just grit his teeth and bide his time for a bit, and you never know. Paul's releasing a solo album, you could release a solo album, Paul might then go back out on the road. And as we've just established, that is where the money is, and that is where Denny wants to go, but he cannot guarantee that. Though, I mean, it's not like there's other behind-the-scenes riffraff that's getting in the way of Paul wanting to keep Denny around, right? Well, I think it's best that we let Denny Lane explain this for himself. Tell him, Denny. I left Wings for two reasons. One was for the money. The other was for me missus. They made her feel like an outsider. Paul used to have his little digs at her. I can't work with people around. He was always saying that a lot when she was there. Paul certainly tried to get rid of her and probably thought he was doing me a favour. Paul and Linda's refusal to allow Jojo on Montserrat went a long way towards destroying me marriage. I thought by leaving Wings, Joe and I could spend more time together and work out our problems. But unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Wow, okay there, Denny. Where the fuck did that come from? Like, that was some equally cold-ass shit right there. I mean... I knew that money and women were the only two quote-unquote reasons that ever really break up male friendships. But for fuck's sake, Denny, did you have to live up to that so faithfully? First things first, who is Jojo Lane? I think we've mentioned her in passing a couple of times on this show now. And for those who don't know, she was Denny's long-term Ross and Rachel on-again, off-again girlfriend who mostly had been portrayed in the works that I've read as a bit of a knockoff reboot of Yoko Ono, in the way that Wings was a bit of a knockoff reboot of the Beatles. Linda was the golden girl of the group and is held in high regard by any Macca fan, of course. No one knows who any of the other band members' partners are, so all we are left really with is Jojo Lane. And from what scraps of info I've managed to glean, both in paper form and online, she was basically a bit of a gopher actress model, occasional singer and what appeared to be the group's main contact for constant drug supply as well as one of the loosest lipped members of the wings menagerie yeah if you want a quote that slanders paul and linda look no further famously on the show it was jojo lane who supposedly originally spread the rumor that jimmy mcculloch the guitarist for the band at that point pointed a pistol at a sleeping paul and linda so yeah reliable sources and all that and I want to let Wikipedia just take it from here for a moment. Originally a groupie who had affairs with Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix and many other artists, she had a lengthy relationship with Rod Stewart just before her meeting of Lane. Stewart is said to have written the hit song, You Wear It Well For Her. And in the foreword to her autobiography, that is as of yet unpublished, Stewart has written, You wore it well then Jojo, and you wear it well now. Ginger Baker wrote the last page of her book saying, very affectionately, no sane man would go near her. And apparently she actually lost her virginity to Hendrix, and that is why I love Wikipedia, in the sense that there is just this perfect mixture of factual info and unintentional hilarity. No sane man would go near her. Yeesh, yikes, I wonder if Denny has ever come across that quote. You know, to be fair, if he did, he probably would have just chuckled and brushed it aside but despite what anyone may say about Jojo Lane or what cruel internet forums say about Jojo Lane Denny was clearly head over heels for her and 
She was clearly very important in his life. She met him backstage at a gig in 1972 and within two days they were an item and they were married in 78. It was the ultimate groupie's dream, she recalled, and the title of groupie would follow her and right up till her death a few years ago. Her and Denny had a son and daughter and she, like the rest of the Wings Consortium, accompanied the band on tour on the various buses and transportation devices and it was widely gossiped that Linda was not at all happy with her being on said closed spaced tour buses. This is probably because Paul McCartney was one of the few remaining men in rock and roll not yet to give her his cock and balls. And then there's the whole quote where Jojo Lane's daughter mentions how like Jojo Lane actually flew out to America in the first place to bed Paul McCartney but then she kind of met Denny and then that kind of happened but then Denny was in the band and then there was this kind of tension. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that and any digression for that would just be speculation. Though could you imagine a moment where like Linda catches Jojo flirting with Paul perhaps and Paul just being the charming bloke that he is possibly seems receptive to it. I know that that could definitely cause some tension within the band. Denny is quoted as saying this about Linda's lack of love for Lane's little lady. You know, Linda's a lot older than Jojo, and that was one of the main problems. Joe is the extrovert that Linda wishes she could be. That's where the jealousy lies. <laughs> Fuck me. Someone get the burn cream for that one. Ouch. For God's sakes, Denny. I mean, I know things weren't exactly amicable with the McCartneys by this point, but you could have pulled the punch on that one somewhat. But it, it, it doesn't stop there. Here's what Denny had to say about Paul. Paul McCartney thinks he's easygoing, but there's a mistrust about him. He doesn't trust people, and it shows. But yeah, now that the scene is set somewhat, uh, the board is set, back to our Denny Lane story. We have a brummy songwriter trapped in a band that seemingly no one wants to be in. He's in a band that isn't touring anytime soon. He's in a band whereby he feels he really should be earning more. Well, it, it, it's kind of a band. He's now a session guitarist. He's a, a session guitarist for a band that probably should be paying him more, which is only made worse by the fact that all the money has been lost in that Japanese tour. He feels that... A guy who was once his kind of writing partner is now his boss. Maybe by extension he's not being made to feel welcome. Definitely his partner's not being made to feel welcome. So as a result he was clearly disillusioned with this project. And was kind of looking for his own way out. I've already mentioned that he was recording his own solo album. And Japanese Tears, Lane's first solo release, is definitely something that we'll be checking out on a bonus episode on this show in the future. Definitely looking forward to that. Though I'm not sure if it's going to live up to... Harrison's uh, All Things Must Pass in terms of this kind of repressed artist, but we shall see. I'm not sure if Denny was as down on Back to the Egg as Macca was, but he probably too was aware that that wasn't the best era of Wings' history, so perhaps he was glad that the band itself, like that project, was over. But either way, whatever was going on now was not the vision that he had in mind. Either way, he still had Jojo. Well, not exactly. The story goes that Maka simply had enough of Jojo's shit and went straight up and banned her from the recording sessions for Tug of War in Montserrat. Like, no word, no warning, no, hey man, could you leave the chick at home this time, you know? Nope, Paul was in no mood for monkey shines this time and he was clearly trying to remove any negative elements in his life that could affect the recording of the album. This obviously would have a massive blow to Denny, whose loyalty I'm sure was already hanging by a thread and he's being pulled in both directions, and perhaps she was a Lady Macbeth type. She's trying to fuck with Denny's mind as well. Maybe he just wanted to go off with her and just do the solo album. Who knows? Things were just rocky all over. 
But I am going to say now, the way Denny leaves the band is definitely not something that I that I I don't know if my approval is something that he needs or gives a fuck about. But the way he leaves, it it just seems to be a bit of a a bit of a stunt, a bit of a a massive display of avert emotion and frustration, and and what's described sounds like a very kind of frustrated, uh, almost to the point of acting childish man who seemingly after running out of options and all other normal methods of communication is just going to do the classic little boy method of getting the important woman in your life to ring in sick for you. Now, knowing what we know about about Jojo Lane, I think it's safe to say that Jojo is a person whose words should not always be taken at face value, which is annoyingly awkward because she actually provides the most detailed account of how exactly Denny Lane was separated from the band. She goes on to say, Denny was supposed to be in the studio that afternoon. First Trevor called, and then John Hamill. But Denny said, I'm not speaking to anybody. Eventually, of course, Paul called, asking, Is Denny there? So I said, Well, he doesn't want to speak to anyone right now, Paul. I was real nice when I said it, but I secretly loved being able to tell McCartney to sod off. Denny has asked me to give you and everyone else the message, because he has finally realised that now he has lost his family, and all the damage has been done. As far as I'm concerned, Denny can go to the studio with my blessings, but he doesn't care to. You fucking cow, Jojo, he screamed into the receiver. That was the last time Denny and Paul ever had any contact right up until 1990, ten years later. (whistles) Woo-wee, again, that's a lot to take in. That is sure one hell of a story there, Jojo. Though, through my reading, several things do line up Uh, with other elements of the literature and even some certain statements from Paul himself. It does indeed seem that this relationship was so shitty that it was ended like a couple of 14-year-old high school sweethearts, aka over the phone, uh, through an intermediary, like, well then she told me to tell you to tell her to tell me. What is interesting, though, is in the telling of this tale, Jojo herself did the breaking up with Paul. Now, this is one of those things like Paul's weed in Japan where it's really up in the air because if it is true, then maybe Denny's doing some distancing of his own in getting her to do it for him. Or perhaps she's domineering and controlling Denny, making him quit to prove his love to her or something. Again, perhaps it's just a power trip and she just wants to be the type of woman who ends a band with Paul McCartney. Who knows? I mean, it does sound like she's sort of getting off on this whole situation when you read the quote back. And I do smell some fuckery, because I just don't see Denny, a guy who owes so much to Paul, who I've known him for so long, just to sit at home in a mood to not come into the studio and just let his missus ring in sick for him again. I do hate these we-will-never-know cases. But with Denny obviously having his own bias, Paul's silence and Jojo's death, unfortunately that's probably all we're ever going to get. What we do know is that Denny was either politely requested or duly ordered uh, to go to the studio and he didn't go, saying he was feeling both moody and blue and that he had to go now, which he did. Now, all of this behind-the-scenes stuff, as his proper form, was not really that widely circulated back when it was actually happening and unless you worked a decker or something, you probably just believed the media line. When people began asking Denny's management what was going on, they played it safe with a good old-fashioned cop-out answer. They said, There is no row, but Denny likes to tour, and Paul decided that Wings will not make any tour plans for the future. What's interesting about that quote is that still, even at this point, 
we historically even now know that the tug of war sessions have already officially begun songs for that project are already being written fights are being had backs are being stabbed and still throughout all of this wings or the idea that was wings the wings the brand technically was still kind of a thing it's on and off it's touch and go but still even after the departure of denny lane wings are still officially on paper for all intents and purposes still a band and this only goes to highlight both the drawn out process of this band's ultimate dissolvement as well as the persistent uncertainty to the facts as to when this shit actually went down like it's really hard to pinpoint a date but yeah could you imagine a, a lineup of wings without denny lane tis a weird thought right denny's the right hand man one of the core trio and now he is no more he has ceased to be. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do all of that again. More so than ever, though, this is now the Paul McCartney show. And if Wings were to carry on, in my head, the first thing that may happen is that Juba and Holly would probably all be kicked out of the band either way. Like, Denny got them into the band in the first place, and now he was no longer there to defend them. And I think if Wings were going to go on with another lineup, it would be him and Linda, and then another brand new version of Wings for the 80s, maybe with Eric Stewart to set up a new core within the band, and then maybe build up a lineup around that. But alas, that was never going to happen. Paul was bored with the concept, Denny was gone, Linda wanted to be at home with raising a family and working on her own projects, George Martin felt that Holly and Juba weren't needed, as this wasn't a band album, so you know, functionally they were dead, much like the Beatles were in their last days, but they are still officially quote-unquote a band, I think. And the thing with Wings is there was never a day when there was a big breakup, because there never was a big breakup, as you've seen. Paul has dismantled it piecemeal. So it's it's not that Wings ever broke up, it's just that they they never made another album. You know, every project was a Paul McCartney solo project from then on. It's like when you hear about wars that never officially are brought to a ceasefire because neither side technically surrendered or won. It is one of those. What's worse about this whole uncertainty about how this friggin' band ended and died just means that I have to drag it out. I don't want to see Wings go. I've really been enjoying this Wings content on this podcast, but alas, we are going to have to don our solo McCartney caps from this point onward. But I think I'm going to end this section with a couple of quotes from Paul's perspective to see whether the to see whether this whole Denny Lane fracas has any backing to it. Because Paul, with this ever-present media hat that he has on, has not gone into too much detail on his end. A bit like how you know, a bit like how God shits all over the devil in his holy book, and the devil never says any, anything back in writing his own book. But you know, I'm not going to draw any parallels there. Paul was obviously never going to be as close with Denny as he was with John and maybe it's a classic case of Denny thinking that they were closer than they actually were with Paul seeing it as much more of a professional working relationship and that's why he was able to let it go so easily because it's weird really because I always go back to this point that Wings was meant to be about a project where Paul was finding people that he could have fun with and hang out with and smoke a bit of pot with and if he wasn't particularly close to any of these people then Wings never worked at all, did it? Because he never found people that he actually liked. And maybe the point was that, you know, Wings is meant to be the Beatles. These people are meant to be the people that he likes. He wished that John Lennon, George Harrison and Richard Starkey all got along and liked each other the way they did back in the day. I've always said, Paul, hey, 
maybe you should have done a, a full-on super band but wings is the band that we got and I, I just find it strange that paul and denny at least were never closer maybe it's just because paul wrote all the hits and denny couldn't keep up and he wasn't a proper peer uh, so that bond never really formed on paul's end it makes me wonder though whether paul felt that the relationship was kind of this unspoken implication that Denny should be, be, be kind of this ever grateful, ever loyal companion. The Sam Wise to his Frodo, the Millhouse to his Bart, the Blair to his Bush, if you will. So for Denny to be bitching and whining about money like he was an equal could potentially have worn away any fondness Paul may have had for him. Was Denny getting a bit too big for his boots? Maybe. This also leads to a situation whereby you wonder whether Paul was glad to finally be rid of Denny or not. Because, you know, he just hated Jojo and was willing to take the loss of Denny. This is a quote from Paul McCartney taken from an interview with the Enemy magazine in 1982. And it was one of the first breaks in the post-Wings radio silence. It reads, At the time Denny was staying with me, we were writing together. He was going to stay on, but we had a bit of a falling out. It was nothing madly serious, but he did decide to go his own way, saying that he wanted to go on tour. He hasn't been on tour since, huh. However, he wanted to get his own thing together, you know. It's easy to assume that once Denny was out of Paul's life that he simply would have faded away from Paul's conscious memory. But as with the end of the Beatles, albeit to a far lesser degree, people were constantly curious about the breakup of Wings. And as we've seen previously, Denny Shaw had a lot to say about Paul and they ran in similar circles both before and after Wings. So you could suppose that Paul might have been aware that some of what was being described as was you know a bit of a hatchet job behind Macca's back but as seen in this next quote that I'm going to read to you Paul was clearly very well aware of what Denny was doing and saying and who he was saying it to and although many parts of the following statement you know say otherwise I personally can spot a certain media front being put on for the plebs uh, this was from the Musical Express also in 1982 it reads Denny's got his own theory about what happened all the time. As far as I'm concerned, there were no hatchet jobs ever. And if there were, it certainly wasn't Denny that went around doing them. Maybe there was one case where he had to do it, I don't know. These stories grow so madly, you know, just from one little line. These weren't any big hatchet jobs. Denny Seibel left of his own accord. I'm sure we can go through the whole lineup. It's a bit boring, really. It's all a bit of a yawn. With the last Wings lineup, we parted in a friendly way. Everyone was a bit disappointed. And I was a bit sad because that was it. Because it was a bit of a burden. It's a bit like a marriage you've got to keep up. It becomes a very tiring thing. And just for the Denny Lane fans of this show, do not worry. Denny Lane will always still be the last sound you hear on this show with his fantastic solo for No Words off Band on the Run. That's going nowhere. Don't worry. Recording the album. Took a War is widely lauded as an album that has borderline perfect production from back to back. And within the fan base, this sentiment is only strengthened. The reason for this is that Paul allowed himself to take his time with said material. Though, not in the meandering, oh, you know, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, kind of back to the egg sort of way, but in a patient, self-reflexive and studious manner. The first recording sessions for Tug of War, after all of those disastrous early rehearsal sessions, took place in December of 1980 at George Martin's Air Studios in Oxford Street, London. This is where the majority of the Tug of War slash Pipes of Peace project was going to be created at. Was going to be created. These were mostly the songs that Paul had either painfully shopped around with wings or had plinky plonked away with Denny Lane a few months prior. 
With Lennon's subsequent death, however, these sessions were ultimately cut short, and Paul and George agreed that it was best to let some time pass before they approached all of that material again. I'm not wholly sure whether the names for either of those projects have... It was clear that after the assassination... <clears throat> it was clear that after the assassination of John Lennon, Paul was eager to stick to what he knows best and jet set, get the fuck out of there and go try and relax somewhere completely random. It worked in Scotland with the Beatles. It worked with Lagos for Band on the Run. And, you know, it kind of worked on the boats with London Town. So this time, Paul would decide to escape to the island of Montserrat near Barbados. And when I first read Montserrat, I kind of had... Uh, a Monte Carlo, Casino Royale, French Riviera kind of vibe to it. But yeah, this is full-on Caribbean. We are going for sun, sea, and reasonably proportional levels of privacy. And this would be the perfect holiday-slash-getaway locale-slash-hideout-slash-base-camp production studio to allow him to both come to terms with the loss of Lennon as well as record a professional studio album. Though, what I will say is that out of the Band on the Run, uh, London Town... Though what I will say is that out of Band on the Run, London Town and this album, I would argue that this is the album that feels wholly the least influenced by the locale. This is mostly due to the fact that the majority of the songs, like I say, were written well beforehand. The Paul McCartney Project, which is a website that is a godsend to this show, is a little sketchy on what songs were actually written, if any, wholly uh, as a Montserrat creation. Though it is pretty clear that Here Today will, would be in that roster. Uh, I doubt Paul would have written it in that in that gap. I do feel like this was some... Um, I, I doubt it would have been written in that short interim between the recording sessions. And he would have definitely needed some time to definitely uh, process the death of Lennon, uh, Lennon before you know write, writing a song. There would definitely be a case of too soon with him, I'm sure. And Here Today does not appear in any of those early pre-Montserrat sessions and there's also a there's also, there's also a little part of me that has a feeling that someone who cares was also written at Montserrat as well I don't know why we'll just go with it I don't I don't know why but there are loads of photos of Paul you know kind of half shirtless with his acoustic guitar in Montserrat and it's just got that kind of slight mamuni of uh, getaway vibe to it that makes me think that it was possibly writ- writ- possibly written there they would be they would be recording again at Air Studios, but this time on the island. Air, which stands for Associated Independent Recording, was the recording company set up by George Martin himself, so it was all very in-house. And the company's creation seems to coincide with the Beatles' breakup. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Making it very easy to see Air as Martin's big post-Beatles project. The first studio, the one in, in Oxford... The one in Oxford Street, London, that we mentioned earlier, uh, opened in the early 70s, with the Montserrat branch opening up a couple of years later, with a third unit that is still working to this day, opening up in Hampstead, London in 91. Air was essentially the best way for artists to get the George Martin full studio experience without having to go with the suits at Abbey Road. Crucially, Air was not owned by a record company, which gave a certain amount of freedom compared to other studios. Elton John recorded uh, the albums Jump Up, Too Low for Zero, and Breaking Hearts there across the 80s. We had Rush's Power Window. The police recorded Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity there, as did Black Sabbath with with Eternal Idol. There was Silent Letter, which was America's 79 album. 
there was the Rolling Stones with Steel Wheels. Fucking Brothers in Arms by the Dire Straits was fucking recorded there. You know, this is a very important place. I wonder what Air Studios is doing today. Fuck all, it turns out. Unfortunately, the studios themselves were destroyed by a hurricane were destroyed by Hurricane Hugo in 1989, and there's been no attempt to rebuild George Martin's home away from home there. When speaking um, to the BBC about the studios many years later, George Martin here explains both why it was such an important locale and why places like it no longer exist. He says, You know, before we came to Montserrat, there was no Western music to speak of on the island. Before air, building air meant that many leading recording artists came to stay. It cast a spell on them and they mingled in with the local people. It was and still is a unique place. After ten great years of recording there, the music business has changed. The moguls running the business no longer wanted their artists miles away, outside of their control. That coincided with that coinc- that coincided with the devastation caused by the hurricane, and sadly the studios had to close. The people of Montserrat are still very proud of the work that was done at Air Studios. Speaking of George Martin, and who doesn't like doing that, possibly the most obvious direct effect that George Martin had on the album was his strict approach to approving what songs Paul would be recording for said album. He wanted to essentially trim the fat that he saw in the material that McCartney was presenting to him. Martin had already put up with similar shit like this before. Rather famously, uh, the professionally cantankerous producer declared that he would have had the Beatles' self-titled double album, aka the White Album, be trimmed down to a single, leaner, stronger album. Bearing that in mind, now, ten years on, ten years wiser, here, George Martin stands with a whole load of unbridled, unchecked, unchallenged, uh, saccharine, sentimental, ooey-gooey McCartney. The songs that you did not recognise earlier when I was reading out a bunch of the songs, um, when I was was listening to them, uh, I'm sure were just the ones that Mr. Martin poo-pooed the most and they were never fully worked on again and they've just been kind of erased from history like some sort of dissident Soviet minister. And Martin's ability to totally quash an obviously shite Paul McCartney idea was essentially most of most of the unspoken agreement that the two of them had. Paul needed someone to say no to this lesser material. Some of the lesser material would obviously just end up being pushed back for the Pipes of Peace project, but Martin which but Martin knew which rebellious rebels to crush and when. One of the first things you'll see when you look at the sheer track list and breadth of the tug of war slash pipes of peace sessions is you just see this massively eclectic number of styles and sounds that McCartney was working with. Again, probably a direct result of having been stuck in the wings rock and roll quote unquote formula for so long. When speaking to Musical Express for the April slash May edition in 82, McCartney said, I always wanted to do all of that kind of stuff, but I don't think I should do it for some particular reason, or because I didn't care to do it. So I just said, oh sod it, I'll just do it. I'll just try and make a good album and concentrate on the music and not worry about styles. Not worry about, not worry about that it's a new album. Not worry about the normal things that I go into an album worrying about, you know? This is a big change from that Wings MO where it was going to be a rock band that makes rock songs that appeals to everyone and we try and think about who our market is and reading the reviews and all of that. Obviously, Wings had varying degrees of success with this plan, but the plan, it was. And now that he is free of that band, he's 
finally expanding on ideas that he'd been building towards in McCartney 1 and Ram and McCartney 2 and even with songs like You Gave Me the Answer on Venus and Mars which um, which all points to this uh, sonically consistent uh, slash inconsistent McCartney uh, doing what Paul McCartney was born to do which is you know making an album of whatever the hell he really wants to the big claim to fame that this album has, you know, aside from being Macca's so-called return to form, is the fact that the whole thing is a veritable star-studded event. Paul was clearly desperate to work with anyone else by the end of the Wings era, and even just before the final push he indulged himself by working with a wide variety of rock and rollers on the Rockestra project. Now that Wing was kaput though, he was free as... Now that Wings was kaput, he was free and as... He was free, and as the massively rich and successful bloke that he is, he was free to uh, take the pick of the litter and ensure that he has only the very best of the best and the coolest of the cool for this album. None of that, I don't just want to hang out with guys that I want to, you know, I just want to hang out with people that are fun and cool to hang out with, you know? None of that. We're not going to leave any more room for mistakes. We're not going to leave any room for poor musicianship. We're going to have the best of the best, sir, with honours. Though it was still very much a Paul McCartney album, and Paul did try and push that angle, as he's always been very anti-suited... As he's, he's always... As he's always been very anti-supergroup, he says here in The Enemy in 82 again. The album, the album's like a star-studded cast of thousands, which, to me, is a little bit of a drawback, if anything. Normally, I don't like albums with huge casts on them, like supergroups. So yeah, he does say that, but the evidence that the album gives you says something else, you know, differently. Uh, if anything, Tug of War is like this massive release for Paul whereby he's finally able just to do whatever he likes now. And he's expressing that not only through the styles of music, but also through the people that he works with. He's not only expressing himself here through the styles of music that he's going to be, be, be working with and expressing himself there. It's also going to be physically through the people that he works with as well, who he chooses to spend his time with. Now, whilst this may look like one of Paul's greatest attempts at a collaborative atmosphere, you know, one of the biggest pushes since Wings at the Speed of Sound, you would ha you, you, you'd be wrong. In essence, this move is more of an attempt to is more of an attempt to gain control more so than ever. This was a crucial album for Macca and he and George Martin knew it. This wasn't a side this wasn't a side project amidst wings like McCartney 2. This was a proper Paul McCartney album and he wasn't going to let any mitigating outside factors stand any chance of ruining his big 80s comeback. He would select artists that were the best in the business and in many ways being the best in the business doesn't necessarily mean you're the most creative player or expressive or that you can do jazz or that you're even nice to hang out with. It just means you can do the Paul it just means you can do the job that Paul McCartney wants you to do when he asks you to do it. Yes sir, no sir, how high sir. And since the credits of this album do not simply state McCartney, 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 McCartney all the way down the instruments list, all the way down the instruments list, and that, and that, and that, since they, since the credit of this album for once do not simply state McCartney, 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 McCartney all the way down the list, and since that he is the head of the project, he could just simply fire anyone at will. It meant that Paul was indeed happy with all of the work that they churned out. He didn't replace them or re-record it himself. And that meant everything on the album is exactly the way Martin and McCartney wanted it to sound. 
which when you consider how much work they did do and how much effort went into this record is actually a pretty exciting thought going in. That being said, I think it is time that we went deeper into the roster, the line of the gallery of rogues, the of who's who and who's that of 1982's Tug of War. Linda McCartney. So, first up, the first quote-unquote session musician on this album is, of course, Paul's wife and muse Linda. No real shock or surprise there, as she appears almost everywhere. She's been on everything that Paul has done ever since Let It Be, and her inclusion is almost like a good luck charm for him by this point, in the same way that Hollywood director Ron Howard, in the same way that, in a similar way that uh, Hollywood director Ron Howard always has a cameo for his wife uh, for a similar token. Linda appears on nearly every track except for Here Today, Get It, and the, uh, and the Be What You See link. However, this time, now she's no longer in the coveted seat of bandmate. Now that she's no longer in the coveted seat of bandmate, Paul has graciously removed her keyboards, moogs, and PNEs far, far away from her fingertips, and she is just a backing vocalist. Though I am at somewhat of a loss to recall any of her vocal contributions on songs like What's That You're Doing? But anyway, Denny Lane. Moving on to the man who just won't leave wings and, you know, just won't leave this podcast, the brilliant Brummy Denny Lane. We all know him by now, previous founding member of the Moody Blues, lead singer on Go Now and multi-instrumentalist extraordinaire. On Tug of War or... For the amount of time that he was actually around to beat on Tug of War, he was still able to actually utilise many of his talents, appearing on many tracks with many instruments before his explosive departure that we went through earlier. He plays electric guitar on the title track Ballroom Dancing and Dress Me Up As A Robber, on which he also plays synthesizers. He picked up the acoustic guitar for The Pound Is Sinking, a guitar synthesizer, whatever that is, on Someone Who Cares. And finally, he played the bass on Wonderlust. Eric Stewart. Now we are moving on to some of the new names, the new faces and heavy hitters. Eric Stewart was the former founding member of the UK band 10CC. Eric and Eric and another member of the band actually pressed on uh, after two of the other members, there were four of them originally and two of them subsequently left. Eric and another member of the band uh, pressed on, and the press dubbed them 5CC, rather amusingly. Stewart played electric guitar on the title track and added his signature backing vocals on nearly all of the songs. I really could go into detail on his... I really could go into detail about this particular McCartney collaborator, but it's only fair that Eric Stewart, um, his iconic McCartney harmonies, and his overall contributions over the next two or three albums is a story that is really to be told for another episode where he can have a whole segment of his own. Steve Gadd. Rather like the story about his mother coming to him in a dream for Let It Be, session drummer Steve Gadd is the go-to guy to cite when McCartney needs to make a quote about Tug of War and how he wanted to pick the best from the best. Paul says, We decided not to be as restricted and just write anything and then get in any thought. We decided not to be as restricted and just write anything and then get anyone that we thought that could play it. So we just started a new era, working with whoever we thought was the most suitable for the tune. If the thing needed a type of drumming, a Steve Gadd particular kind of thing, then we decided we'd get him rather than just adding someone sounding a bit like Steve Gadd. 
Steve Gadd had appeared on a wide variety of records over the years, including Simon and Garfunkel's Concert in the Park, as well as the as well as creating the syncopated militaristic stylings on Paul Simon's own Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover. He played drums for Ricky Lee Jones, and I only know this because she was briefly involved with Tom Waits. Gad played for, for Gad played for BB King, George Benson, James Brown, Eric Clapton, Kate Bush, Steely Dan, and Chet Baker. He had certainly been around the block and definitely made a name for himself as McCartney seemingly had an instant massive hard had an instant massive stiffy at the mere thought of hamming this guy's drumming in one or two of his songs. Rather hilariously, he seems to Rather curiously, Gad seems to have either three failed bands or one schizoid band, a la Ringo Starr and his all-star band. There's the Steve Gad band, then we have the Steve Gad and Friends band, and then we have Steve Gad with the Gad Gang, which just sounds like a, a comedic escalation of ridiculous heights, but anyway. Gad would ultimately go on to perform on Take It Away and Someone Who Cares with both drums and the overall percussion. Ringo Starr! The next drummer on this album, despite the fact that I'm doing an introduction, really does need no introduction. At this point, he's still the reigning champ in terms of time spent playing drums with Paul, and and has even had McCartney appearing on his own records throughout the years. Duh, he's Ringo Starr, Richard Starkey, and he appears to... And he appears as a drummer for Take It Away, as well as the ensuing music video. More on that on another episode. Ringo's involvement on the album was seen by many as a branch of good faith to Beatles fans who would have been eased of their pain from Lennon's recent death by seeing two former Beatles collaborating again. Clearly, the two of them would have been... Clearly, these two ex-Beatles would have been in a fractured place at the time, and the two of them coming together to make some music was simply their way of dealing with the tragedy in the only way that they knew how. It was their version of talking about it. You know? George Martin. Another guy who needs no introduction at all, and I've already done to death how important he was to this album already, but... He wasn't just content with being the defining producer that potentially saved this album from banality, the late, the great George Martin, rather like the way he did back with the boys in the Beatles days, also wanted to have a couple of director cameos on this album. He plays the furiously wicked electric piano for Take It Away, as well as playing it again at the end of the Dress Me Up, as well as playing them again at the end of the album on Dress Me Up as a Robber. Stanley Clark. When I first found out that Paul was essentially choosing artists in the way that I choose donuts from a Krispy Kreme stand, I never really took the time to consider the idea that Paul would pick another bassist. It's almost like an affair, isn't it? I mean, Paul was the bassist in the Beatles, and he's, you know, the supposedly just the bassist in Wings. And whilst the idea of having other piano players and keyboard players and other guitarists is not weird in the slightest, I just... I know that obviously they'd be playing the bass for him live for things like Wings Over America, but I always saw the, the, the bass as Paul's baby. Bassist Stanley Clark, aka founding member of Return to Forever, one of the original jazz fusion bands, was one of the best bass players of his generation. His style of even just holding the bass guitar is semi-famous even in itself, and he has notched up Grammy Awards in 1977, 2011 and 2012. He plays the bass on Someone Who Cares, plus Ebony and Ivory. Adam McKay. 
Adam McKay was a member of the British rock group of the British rock group Roxy Music and was widely known as a competent multi-instrumentalist session musician within the industry, working for acts such as Mott the Hoople, Godly and Cream, Duran Duran, as well as Brian Eno. He plays the Lyricon or Lyricon, aka a wind synthesizer driver, which is a computer oboe thing from the future, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, whatever that is, he plays it on Take It Away. Dave Matax, a member of the band Fairport Convention. This guy was a renowned rock and folk drummer here in the UK. And the list of famous faces he had worked with just goes on and on and on. You got Elton John, George Harrison, Respect, Cat Stevens, Nick Drake, John Martin, Jimmy Page, The Proclaimers, Chris Rea, Jethro Tull, again, as well as Brian Eno. Seemingly, no one hasn't worked with this guy now. And this chap does all of the percussion and drums for Dress Me Up as a Robber. Then we have some of the names that not even Wikipedia has a blue hyperlink for. So let's just do a quick rundown of those guys. And whilst I do not have their names, I'm sure they were equally sought after by Paul for their work. We have Campbell Maloney playing the snare drum on Tug of War. There's Jack Brimer rocking the clarinet solo for Ballroom Dancing. That wonderful. And Adrian Shepard bringing it up in the rear playing the drums for Wonderlust. Carl Perkins. And this is the one that I am sure Paul was gushing and squeeing like a nerdy little fanboy that I am sure that he is to get on this album. I mean, Paul McCartney has stated on record that if there were no Carl Perkins, then there would be no Beatles. So it isn't hard for me to imagine Paul acting like an uber Star Wars fan around Mark Hamill. For those of you not in the know, the music of Carl Perkins basically defined rockabilly and early rock and roll, with songs like Blue Suede Shoes and Honey Don't being common in the Beatles' early repertoire. Perkins basically either performed or wrote a good chunk of Macca's childhood songbook, and, along with Elvis, it was basically the closest feeling Paul would ever actually have to meeting someone like another Beatle. To me, it seems that out of all of the guests that Paul wanted to have on the album, it, you know, Perkins would have been the one that he would have been happy to have just to get on there alone. Like, kind of in, in the way with Pipes of Peace, he's just going to have Michael Jackson on. I am sure that he could have delayed a Stevie Wonder encounter and just had Tug of War having maybe two Carl Perkins songs. I'm sure Paul would have been happy with that. The record label and the fans, maybe not so much, but I'm sure... Paul was definitely dead set on getting this guy on this album. And even if he, he would have had no one else, he would have been happy. Perkins and McCartney play and sing together on the wonderful country tune duet, Get It. Stevie Wonder. Then finally, we move on to the man who not only could have a whole segment dedicated to him, not only could have an entire episode dedicated to him, but easily could have an entire award-winning podcast dedicated to him. I really hope there is one. There wasn't the last time I checked. Of course, of course, I'm talking about the incredibly, impossibly talented little Stevie Wonder. And the first thing I thought of when I saw this pairing of Titans, after I came in my pants, of course, was just one of true exuberant excitement. Because, because Stevie, for the first time, out of all of these collaborations that Paul has been in since the breakup you know, with the Beatles, is going to offer Paul the chance of a true writing partner who actually is his peer. Like, 
there would be no difficulty for me to find you people, especially here in merry old England, who would think that Mr. Wonder is actually even more talented than Mr. McCartney, and I'm sure the same could be said for the States and Canada and Australia and the Netherlands and all of the other countries that you are listening out there in now, folks. Uh, write us an email if I've missed out your country there, uh, Pod at gmail.com. Shameless plug there. But yeah, I don't want to feel like anyone left out whilst I'm bigging up Steve Wonder on this Macca podcast. I mean, I could easily do a podcast on Stevie. There is a huge breadth of work there, uh, a breadth of work that I may say is extremely fucking exemplary and shockingly consistent. Fuck me, Stevie Wonder is awesome. Though it is easy to forget that Stevie Wonder was the hot shit that he was in the 70s, and anyone who does forget should be swiftly pointed in the direction of his 20-something Grammy Awards and the fact that he just dominated the critics in this period, to the point whereby Paul Simon only won his Grammy Award for Best Album with Graceland, uh, basically because Stevie Wonder didn't release an album that year, and he actually said so and thanked him for doing so in his acceptance speech. I totally understand why Paul would be attracted to this kind of talent. It's not like him and Kanye. Okay, it's a little bit like him and Kanye, because it's still kind of a search for a newish type of Lennon-esque partner, but, you know, whereby with Kanye he was kind of looking for, you know, someone in terms of kind of punchy lyricism and a bit of angst. With Stevie, he's seeking out a peer that he can truly respect and work with and be told no by. If anything, Stevie may have been such a fucking talent that Paul would actually be in a reasonable position for once to actually relent and be on the back foot for once, to to be on his guard, especially once you introduce Quincy Jones into the mix as well. Rather like in the way that George Lucas sold the IP of Star Wars to the only people that could afford to buy it, aka Disney, Paul has sought out one of the only artists who could comfortably stand up to him and tell him musically to fuck off if need be. Stevie's a force to be reckoned with, someone to genuinely enjoy getting the okay from if something good was to come of the collaboration. With Ebony and Ivory and What's That You're Doing, Paul and Stevie, both being accomplished multi-instrumentalists, pretty much did the entire thing themselves, with results that are just unforgettable, aren't they? Good or bad. Paul, in his sessions with Stevie Wonder, in a rather white album fashion, took on the role of drummer, and rather notably was actually scorned by Stevie for not playing them correctly for the song, as he details here. He told me I was playing it a bit too busily, and I slightly resented it at the time, but he was right. I played it simply, and in five minutes, Stevie living and breathing music the way he does, we, well, actually mostly he, had to come up with another song. Later, after I took the track back to England to finish working on it, Stevie said to me he wasn't satisfied with my drumming. It isn't in the pocket, he told me. It really annoyed me, but it also made me say, these drums are going to be right in the pocket when I'm finished. That was Paul in the New York Times, April 25th, 1982. And that concludes pretty much everyone who featured on this album now. That is quite the Motley Crue rogues gallery of faces, you know. That is a real veritable who's who of 80s pop and rock talent. So we have George Martin essentially mentoring the album, but now we have Stevie with the power to veto two whole songs. Then Cole Perkins with the power over another. And it's hard for me not to start uh, drawing conclusions and making connections and start considering the fact that maybe one of the marks of quality that 
this album could be measured in is in how much control McCartney gave up during its production. After Montserrat, McCartney would spend the summer with George Martin, working through further sessions at Air Studios on Oxford Street, and whilst I'm sure the majority of session artists met up with Paul here in the you know, rather less glamorous part of the sessions to add parts to half-completed songs. The preferred image I actually have is of Paul and this menagerie of singers all having this one big party on a Caribbean island with coconut drinks in hand. But alas, it, it probably wasn't that way. And from the lack of stories like Paul having tapes being stolen at knife point or falling ill, I guess Montserrat was actually reasonably successful in acting as a getaway for McCartney. Now, you may have noticed that most of the dates for the production of this album and its gestation range from 1980 to mid-1981. So, why wasn't this out before Xmas of 1981? Well, I think the fact that Tug of War was held back is just more evidence that Paul did not want to rush out this material and generally wanted to release a proper product. Most of the latter half of 81 and even the start of 82 was quietly and patiently spent tinkering away on final overdubs and in some cases, completely reworking certain parts of problem songs. Potentially, in these final stages, songs like Keep Undercover or Hey Hey may very well have still been on the track listing. But after much deliberation, Macca had created his Tug of War. The chosen final collection of songs, originally intended to be, as George Martin put it, some of the funkiest stuff Paul has ever done, actually turned out to be some of Paul's most ambitiously eclectic material to date. Though undoubtedly strong, the selection of tracks was more likely the kid in the sweet shop pick of the litter in terms of like working with the sessions, which ultimately would mean that part of piece was kind of left with the scraps. And admittedly, rather shockingly, the songs chosen did somewhat correspond with the album's supposed themes. Written in a time of great turmoil and uncertainty in McCartney's life, the songs on Tug of War were going to represent conflict and generally have a more serious edge for a more serious album. Album Artwork And on to the album art portion of this show. For those of you who have listened to us the first time around or those of you who have gone back and checked out those earlier episodes, which I obviously recommend, you will know that this is a segment of the show that I always occasionally forgot to do but no more and good thing too because the artwork for tug of war is pretty damn interesting indeed at least for me this is mostly because of of the objectives that it sets out to achieve i know that retrospectively we assign tug of war as this return to form for mccartney but this concept was clearly known to macca and to the production team already that is what they wanted it to be that's not something that we've bestowed upon it and they reflect that notion on the cover itself the most important thing about this album cover is that it had to look professional this was not going to be a McCartney 2 slapdash thrown together job and this is actually one of the few times I'm glad they played it safe and instead actually took the time to create something with a bit of art style and craftsmanship all of that red and blue clashing with a vulnerable McCartney literally caught in the middle of it. What more could you want? It's eye-catching, and it actually conveys the theme. Though I am torn over whether this is one of the best McCartney covers, or just a good one, a fine one. I personally really dig it, but I also have my own biases. This was one of the first vinyls I ever bought, 
as well as being one of the first sleeves that I ever blue tacked up on my university wall display, and it, it always looked magnificent up there, I thought. Somehow for me, the image perfectly captures where McCartney was at that time. He looks like he's trying to process all too much information, he's trying hard to hold it all in. The photograph they use, taken of course by Linda, is a very fragile and very introspective, very youthful, might I say, 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 McCartney, listening uh, to a pair of earphones with his hands clasped over top of them in some kind of almost fetal position. He has no quirky, witty expression like on that McCartney 2 cover. No, this is suitably tasteful, uh, a post-Lennon death image of McCartney. You know he looks alone. He's not disrespectfully exuberant or anything or holding back any ram horns. Also, because of this image of Paul literally in the studio, the overall tone that you get from this cover is that, again, it's not going to be a throwaway project or another side venture. This is indeed going to be a proper, serious, back-to-form McCartney album. To further make the album all the proper, both in its look and in the pedigree of its artist, surprise, surprise to no one, McCartney once again hired the album art mogul's Hypnosis, that's hip with a G-N, as in Gnostic, handling all of the designs. So there is also this certain level of implicit quality built into the album. There was also additional artwork that was carried on the back by Brian Clark. In terms of colour, this is possibly one of the most vibrant and instantly eye-catching solo McCartney albums. Rather like Sgt Pepper, there is an air of rebirth and refreshing. Everything is bold and bright and everything is extremely contrasting. Again, this all plays into the themes of the album perfectly. I mean, the palette isn't exactly hard to decipher to the layman, is it? Whilst both being primary colours, red and blue are purposefully non-complementary colours, and the stark visual contrast between the Ferrari red and the deep ocean blues create this obvious to and fro that we are now subliminally being introduced to the moment we come into contact with this album. Red versus blue, it's like a virus and absolutely nails the concept especially with its pixelated, almost Tetris design that... almost Tetris design that carries on all the way, wrapping around to the back, which again, half is red and half is blue, but there are, you know, these blocky little squares and oblongs and L-shapes look like these little glitches where the red is breaking into the blue and the blue is breaking into the red and they're constantly intertwining like some sort of Atari battle. Also, to any fans of Beatle compilation albums, the use of red and blue will be no surprise to anyone. The album cover itself, without being too brash and bold, went for quite a subtle approach, though I am willing to accept that I may be reading a little bit too much into it. But hey, I am going to go down as saying I do like this album cover. It's simple, effective, tasteful, and most importantly, professional. It might not be the most creative cover in Paul McCartney's oeuvre, and it may have played it too safe, but in the end, its striking simplicity and bold colour palette will generally win for me in the end. Critical reception? I've mentioned several times now that I originally wasn't looking forward to reviewing this album, and one of the primary reasons for me feeling that way was this feeling that I was going to be going significantly against the grain. This is a popular album. It was back then, 
and it still is a significant release within the Maca fan base to this day. I've seen this for sale on vinyl, on CD, brand new in supermarkets, in HMV, in Beetle shops, in any vinyl store, etc, etc, etc. It's a big seller, and its continued popularity is, in part, due to this continually propagated declaration of Tug of War being this unquestionably, undoubtedly strong return to form, and that is the phrase you will come across time and time again. People regularly mention this album alongside such weighty alumni as Ram, Band on the Run, and Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. Big words indeed. No pressure at all then, eh? Not to be that guy or a Debbie Downer or anything, but was there any chance in hell of any album that Paul McCartney released in the wake of John's death actually failing? Especially when one of the songs on the album was going to address the death directly? Or was there actually a chance of this album actually having anything other than masses of praise heaped upon it? In listening to this album and reading up as to what about it makes people so happy, I've semi come to the conclusion that this album was, for many people, an important part of the healing process and coming to terms with the death of John Lennon. Wait, don't think that this is a prelude to me shitting on this album and saying that people only liked it because of the ghost of John or anything. Quite the contrary. All I'm saying is that it would be naive to say that the album sales and the impact that this album had on the world was not in some way influenced by the death of John Winston Ono Lennon. And I know the reactions to that statement are going to be quite strong all over the shop, but that is something we are going to see all across the board on this internet slash fan slash amateur slash armchair review portion of this show. For whenever talking about tug of war, People only seem to be able to speak in strong, definitive, declarative, ironically conflicting statements about the material. Ironically, you know, this album about conflict has created a certain amount of conflict. There is seemingly no one at all who has a middling, mediocre, partisan feeling about this album. And I chalk this down to one annoying review. The first review that I want you to read... And this is a review that you will come across time and time again, even if you just type tug of war into Google. And I'm going to read it to you now. It was the first of these super high praise, two thumbs up, return to form spouting assessments of the album that clearly went some ways into influencing the, the way the rest of us plebs interpreted all of this music, as well as ensuring its proliferation amongst folk other than the most diehard Macca fans. Stephen Holden, a man who was really not that forgiving of Wings at all, writes his review so well and so pro-Paul that you wonder whether he was simply reaching out to Paul to see if he could get a dinner date or more. And this was taken from the May edition of Rolling Stone 1982. He says, Tug of War is the masterpiece everyone has known Paul McCartney could make. In style and format, the album isn't all that different from his earlier work but the songs are far more substantial than the eccentric doodlings of recent albums. Instead of another homemade effort, McCartney has teamed up with producer George Martin to create a record with a sumptuous aural scope that recalls Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Abbey Road. And he continues, Of the many albums McCartney has churned out in his 12-year solo career, only Band on the Run comes close in touching Tug of War in its richness of its style and the consistency of its songs. By striking a balance among Wing's streamlined pop rock, 
the music box miniaturism of his solo projects and the Beatles' baroque expansiveness, Paul McCartney has left the rest of his solo career behind in the dust. Naturally, I chose to read this review first as Rolling Stone are the institute that they are and I know that many people out there feel the exact same way, but for Mr Holden to claim that Ram isn't at least as good as Band on the Run or Tug of War puts me on very uneven footing from the outset indeed. Like, is this guy for real? But in all seriousness, the reason this review has been recycled as it has is because I think that the thoughts expressed in it were the overall thoughts of the majority of Macca fans out there upon release. That being said, a large factor in why so many people believe those views was because said publications kept pushing those views. But yeah, this perfectly captures the building frustration within the Macca fandom and subsequently how much of a big deal and how much of a massive release Tug of War actually was. I think it's safe to say that Mr Holden really fucking liked this album and that seemingly it was everything that the baying community had been asking for. Moving on, and as per usual, we don't really have many other hard copy reviews from that time, but let's go and break down what the modern musical community think about this release. ClassicRockReview.com said, As a whole, the album is almost musically interesting, but not cohesive in the slightest. In total, there is about half a great album here of well-produced and melodic songs. This shows that there was great potential in this reunion of McCartney and Martin. But then, there's the rest of the album, which sounds like it should have been reserved for some kind of celebrity collection. And in all honesty, I really did not expect this review to take this stance at all, as just so much of the community is in love with this album. It's great to see some dispering views. Again, they're very strong either way. And at least they do say that there is at least half a great album there. So there is some congruence. But what I did find interesting was that how he said that half of the material still wasn't good enough. So McCartney comes up to Martin with enough songs to fill Tug of War and Pipes of Peace. And this critic here is basically saying that only a quarter of those songs were pretty much any good. Because Tug of War was the best out of all of that lot. God knows what this guy thinks about Pipes of Peace. User A. Moy from AllMusic.com says... This is probably the third best Paul LP after Ram and Band on the Run. The giant hit here is Ebony and Ivory, and the other songs are uniformly good, tuneful and catchy. The playing is relaxed, natural and seemingly effortless. This is ear candy at its best. As glossy as it was, Paul's ability to make pop greatness was crystallised on Tug of War, making both bold musical and personal statements. The album really is the strongest McCartney solo record, not counting Wings' band on the run. Paul appears confident and in full control of his powers, and having George Martin on board as producer allows McCartney to expand in all areas he is proficient in. Sure, in places you hear hints of the excess that define most 80s releases, but here it adds a flavour and a charm. A strong statement from a man just shy of 40. <laughs> and that's more like it. This is clearly a fan that has connected with the material, and props to them, for they reference Ram and Band on the run properly, which is only going to rub me the, the right way. But his comment on Paul being just shy of 40, I'd love to see what this guy thinks about Egypt Station going straight to number one. Paul is 76, folks. I would like to point out with distinction that this person is a pure McCartney fan through and through, 
as they love Ebony and Ivory, aka the song that no one seems to like and I can't wait to pick apart and dissect that number in part two, but it's safe to say that a fan who likes that song as much as this is a fan that is willing to accept Paul as he is, and that is something that I always can promote and get behind. We can see a similar feeling running through our next reviewer. User Leif Purcell, also from allmusic.com, says, There is no such thing as a single Paul McCartney expert. We've all got our opinions and we've all got our favourite songs and albums. For me, Paul never put out a more perfect nor more Paul the Beatle post-Beatles album than Tug of War. I know it's trendy to say the album sounds dated and overproduced, but I just don't hear it when I listen to it. I also know it's a clever thing to say to declare Ebony and Ivory a tritoned, cringely naive call for racial harmony, but it spent nine weeks at number one for a reason. And how come Paul's song is trite and naive, but Three Dog Nights, Black and White, or Michael Jackson's same title song for that matter, aren't? All in all, a beautiful album, and I'm not sure even Paul ever topped his vocals on Wonderlust. That review was fun simply just because of how self-aware it was. Everyone is a critic and these are all just opinions, so kudos to anyone with the foresight and wisdom to see that really none of this matters. Though I won't lie, the main reason I did put this review in there is because I'm trying to slowly, subliminally, Inception-style wean you onto the idea that Ebony and Ivory isn't also terrible. Because if there is one thing I can do on this podcast, it would be just that. Now, for the next review, I will prefix it by saying that the writer really does not start things off on the right foot with me at all and I'm sure you'll spot what I'm on about. Last year, user Dan Hilland from allmusic.com says, Amazing that after the disaster that was McCartney 2, Paul should come out with one of the best albums in his catalogue. Tug of War not only gives us a modern classic in the breathtakingly beautiful but heartbreaking here today, but Tug of War, ballroom dancing, wonderlust, speaking of classics, but Ebony and Ivory. While the latter gets a little too maudlin for my taste, it is in good company and is deserved of its status as a top 40 hit. And of all Paul McCartney's albums, this is one of his more diverse stylistically. Okay, I kind of do more or less agree with this chap's sentiments here. I am inclined totally though to disregard all of the positive things that I might have to say about this reviewer because he decided to fuck with McCartney too. Let's not beat around the bush here. And I'd be interested to see really if Tug of War is the most stylistically diverse album in his entire catalogue. That has some very stiff competition, surely. And it definitely sounds like a shitty bonus episode, if I ever heard one. The next reviewer is clearly after my own heart, because, spoilers, I think he perfectly sums up my thoughts on the relationship between this release and the next. And on top of that, his name reminds me of a character from HBO's The Wire, so I had to read it out. User Herc from RateYourMusic.com said, Good, but don't stop here. It's definitely not the last good Paul record. The Tug of War album is praised much more than it should be. It's a fine album, but not so much better than other Paul albums, like many critics claim. A usual comparison is between McCartney's following album, Pipes of Peace, and this. People often claim how they hate Pipes of Peace and how they love Tug of War. As I see it, both have great tracks and some average weak tracks. Like, I wouldn't call Pubs of Peace garbage, I wouldn't call Tug of War a masterpiece either. 
Even the Rolling Stones magazine, who used to diss Paul's solo attempts, gave it 5 out of 5. I don't think it was a musical surprise by Paul, or it was much better than his previous releases. What I really think affected the critics to have more of a positive view on this album is that it was the producer of the Beatles albums. George Martin produced the album, and that supposedly makes the album a better record than his previous ones produced by Paul McCartney himself. I think there are slightly more factors into what the critics uh, wanked off this album just so much when it came out. Obviously we have the death of Lennon, and we have Paul McCartney leaving Wings as well. But yes, George Martin did bring this level of prestige that is quite insurmountable than other George Martin produced releases perhaps. And I'm just sat here trying to, you know, clashing my hands over my mouth so that I don't ruin my thoughts on Pipes of Peace. But yes, let's just say that that man's opinions are slightly parallel with my own. Then, just like the last article I just read out, our final article is another one that I love because, again, they directly call out the Rolling Stone article from Stephen Holden from earlier. Because he basically predicts the bonus episode that's going to be coming out after our Pipes of Peace episode. And I also like this one because I sympathise somewhat with dealing with that excessive hype for the album. User MarsBars from RateYourMusic.com said, What results is a second-tier McCartney album that could easily have been a much better one, though still maybe not the masterpiece that Rolling Stone Stephen Holden said it was at the time of release. Slash the leftover doodad from McCartney 2, Be What You See Link, Dress Me Up As A Robber, which has a hideously overcomposed guitar riff and tuneless falsetto, even if the dissection from 52 seconds onwards is a surprise. Replace those songs with the best tracks from Pipes of Peace that was largely written during the same sessions as Tug of War. And there we are, folks. I hope that has given you a, a bit of a broad spectrum as to what people think about this album. I tried to be like the BBC. I tried to be a little bit impartial for this segment. I know certain ones that I choose are for my own pleasure, certainly, but I do try and put positive ones and negative ones as well, especially on these albums where I'm definitely a little bit more torn either way as to which way I'm going to go. I can't even remember if I found a bad review for Band on the Run. I, I might have to go back and listen to that one. But yeah, that is everything I could find on Tug of War, folks. All the interesting stuff, at least. It's everything you could possibly need to know anyway. Now, go listen to the album. Listen to it. Digest it. Create and form opinions on particular moments, particular songs, particular riffs. Make a mental note of it all. And then give me a week to get part two of this motherfucker out there for you all right now. Yes, folks, this is the end of our part one look into Tug of War, McCartney's first full feature-length album since the breakup of Wings. Man, there has been a lot for us to cover today. This has been one of the longest episodes I have done for a while. Uh, writing and recording this episode has taken far, far, far too long. It's It feels like an exorcism to get it finally out there onto the streams for you all. I hope you've all enjoyed it. I'm sure Den Denny Lane is playing us out already by now. But again, please check out our blog at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Check out our Patreon page. Please help support the show. Help keep the lights running. Help us expand and create even more content by checking out patreon.com slash mccartneypodcast. Check us out on Facebook and YouTube simply by typing in McCartneyPod. Hit us up on Twitter at McCartneyPod and drop us an email. Let me know your Paul McCartney stories at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Keep listening to Paul. I've been your host, Sam Wilds. It's been a pleasure as always. Peace and love, peace and love. See you on part two. Play us out, Denny.